each of you and who knows if others will pop in along the way um maybe just real quick we could do like a little like 20 30 second intro so my name's anthony and i have a what what has turned into a podcast called artists love twin peaks i'm an eighth grade language arts english teacher in new jersey and i came to twin peaks in 2020 and uh, i had a very fanatical period that is starting to calm down but it's bubbling up like at any moment so maybe some people could relate could relate um colin can you just tell us a little bit um yeah i'm colin i have the podcast cream corn the universe where well what i do is that i talk to a different co-host each week of about a particular character where We'll go through whether it's the original series, the return, the books, um, or any other media that they would be in. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's what I do. Uh, I'm actually coming up on 50 episodes, so hard to believe that I could do it in like mm -hmm. a year or so. But um, yeah, no, it's just something I really have fun doing and love catching up with people. It's good to see you, man. Josh, we finally meet face-to-face. -face. We've been yeah, chatting for, for quite Very a nice time. to see your face. Yeah. Uh, it's always nice to actually see a face when you're just used to people on Twitter. So uh, that's been, been very pleasant. So I'm a writer. I uh, have uh, written several books about TV shows and movies that, that I really love, one of them being Twin Peaks, The Return in particular. Uh, I call myself a new critic. I only write about art that that moves me that I transcend with if you if you want to go that far with it so I don't write negative criticism I only write about things I'm super passionate about and Twin Peaks just happens to be one of those things so uh, it's a real pleasure to be with with you tonight yeah thanks man John Thorne good to see you again yeah good seeing you I'm John I watched Twin Peaks on April 8th 1990 and I've been thinking about it for a while I've written a couple of things about it. 1990. <laughs> so what what year is this now? 20, 2023. 33 years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, the what year is this question? I'm going to hold off on that for a minute. But um, More than half my life has been uh, thinking about Twin Peaks. Put it that way. <laughs> to me, it sounds like a life well spent. But because I know you enjoy the other parts of your life as well. So I do. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, Josh, I, I wasn't planning on this, but you just said like you're only interested in art where you feel some sort of transcendence or something. Is that is that what you said? What do you mean yeah. about that? So I use this term proper art in the Joycean sense. So in a portrait of the artist is a young man. Joyce lays out a really interesting aesthetic for art where he puts it in two categories of proper and improper. And improper art he calls either pornogra pornography or didacism. So it's either art that's intended to push you away with loathing from the object represented or pull you towards it to, to desire to possess it. But proper art in his definition is art that actually freezes you in time and space and helps you rise above yourself you even lose concept of yourself which is that's the transcendent element of it so anyone who's done tm meditation or yeah. high level sports anything like that you've probably experienced moments of bliss where you lost time 
what what year, what year is it? You know that 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 concept that's very real uh, to to those you transcend. So I've actually experienced that in art several times. Mm. Uh, you know, growing up, I was a huge film fanatic, watched HBO movies all the time, and it was only until I got into college and actually learned that you could make a living writing about these things. And, and John knows this very well uh, with his master's degree studies. Uh, I got real passionate about being able to write seriously about television because where I grew up in the Midwest, TV was something you consumed and threw away. It was uh, you know commodity at best uh, to to port advertising into your brain. I didn't I didn't accept that. I, I actually found moral lessons in shows like Little House and Mr. Rogers and Star Trek. And as I grew older, I was able to wrestle with uh, more complex and troublesome shows like Twin Peaks and actually find the light in those shows and write about it so that hopefully other people could also appreciate that. That's cool. You know, one thing you said when you talked about sort of rising above or sort of transcending perhaps out of yourself or beyond yourself or above yourself. Away from myself, um, out of myself, whatever. Yeah, not 100% sure what the phrase was, but that's interesting because I don't know very much about it, but I've heard David Lynch talk quite a bit about like sort of like going in and I've always associated it with like this downward movement. Where downward, yeah. It's kind of about this like, upward it's, it's, movement, which... Todd is down. So, yeah, uh, like I, mean, I don't know if that matters at all. It's just kind of interesting to hear that. And yeah, for sure. And um, I think I have another person who just showed up, but okay, I think cool. I think his internet is in progress. So it looks like another guest will be here soon. Um, yeah, that's really neat. And hello, Joel. We'll get we'll give him some time. Um, does anybody else know anything about the concept of transcendence, whether it's in a TM sense or just like your own spin on it? I get what Josh is saying about, you know, something that captivates you so intensely that you kind of forget where you are and get, you know, outside of your body. It doesn't happen a lot, but, but there are books and television shows and films that certainly even I've been to museums and sort of had that feeling of looking at you know the right painting or the right piece of art so that that I find that fascinating and it's really I think great art really soothes us and it can rescue us as well when we are perhaps at low points in our lives I saw three nodding heads at the word rescue, and that's interesting. Um, does anybody care to say more on that? I'm not sure. This uh, this might come off more shower thoughts, uh, and apologies in advance, but I feel like it, art should really, it should be able to, like, challenge you. It should be able to be, like, something that, like, you would be a different person had you not come across it otherwise. And uh, I think there's something very important that, uh, you know, if you if you just kind of look at the stuff that you're just kind of like, I guess, comfortable with or you already have, then there's like a certain level of complacency. But if you find something new, then it just, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think the best way to describe it, because uh, I know that sometimes different art can kind of give different responses. But I just think it's important to always kind of try to pursue something that would uh, evoke certain responses and to, yeah, sorry, I, I, I probably should have thought about it before I said more, but well, I, I just hope that, you know, if, if, if everyone knows what I'm talking about, um, mm -hmm. I hope that it's a, a, a able to come across. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what you're saying, I don't want to 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, I agree with what you said right, right off the start is that a lot of times you are a different person after you've uh, encountered a certain arc. You, you find out more about yourself and that's, that's a great value. And, and certainly as I've written about Lynch and, and Twin Peaks, I think uh, that's a great example of, of, of art that really asks you to think about yourself um, or perhaps it doesn't ask you overtly, but it just implicitly asks you to, uh, to kind of learn more about yourself as you're processing it, or at least that's the, that's the outcome. But that's part of why I, I think it, that's part of why I think it has the appeal it has, the lasting appeal it has, why it's still 33 years after that pilot aired. Uh, and I know it's only six years after the return, but still people are talking about that. They're not talking about the other shows that were on, uh, you know, television at that time because it didn't impact them the same way. Yeah, well said. It's also a communal language, right? So nobody can talk politics anymore, obviously. Like that's not a place where we can come and exchange ideas and walk away more then we went into that conversation with, but with art. Except, except, for Josh, except for Josh and Anthony, but but that's rare. You know? <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Once in a while. I, I, try, we could I do try not to talk politics anymore, <laughs> but if you talk about art, you can talk about politics in, in a way that is abstracted and you're not as personalized in that. So like your opinion on what happens to Cooper and my opinion on what happens to Cooper may be totally different. And that's awesome. That's great. We allow that diversity and we encourage it. So when we come together and connect over that, we can bring those shared transcendent experiences together. And now we've got some commonality that goes beyond where we were born, where we grew up and what we believe. Right. Yeah. I, I certainly agree with that, especially when it comes to, work like David Lynch's or Twin Peaks specifically, which, you know, if someone was to say there's only one finite interpretation, you know, they would be looked at like they had four heads. So that just by its very nature lends itself to exchange, I think. And um, is is Joel here? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, I was hey. late. <laughs> had a little trouble getting in, but here I am. Great to see you, man. You too. Hey. <laughs> All right, buddy. Good. Cool. And are you able to see the, the, the four or hear at least the four of us? Yeah, I'm doing just the audio because I've still got the, the slow laptop, which is going to be fixed soon. But like I said to Anthony, not not soon enough for this conversation, unfortunately. Yeah. That's OK. <laughs> so, That's perfect, because, you know, this whole chat is a little bit in honor of you, because there have been conversations that you and I have had that I just found so light at times and, and then also very deep at times, but fun all the way through. That I thought it would be cool to do it in a group. So I mean, really, you are the uh, you are the genesis of this. And well, I'm, I'm glad we could kick that off, <laughs> kick off a so, new tradition. Yeah. And Joel, we actually all introduced ourselves in like 15 seconds or less, which is rather impossible. But can you try? Sure. Uh, I'm Joel Bacco uh, for Twin Peaks. Uh, I guess work. I'm probably best known for Journey Through Twin Peaks, which is a video series on the film and I try to cover the or on the film and the series uh, and I try to cover the series in a lot of different ways look at the characters look at the episodes um, look at various aspects of it in all different mediums and uh, you know other film and TV as well cool and uh, I'm going to do something I wasn't really planning on but I hope this works out um, can you guys see my screen at all oh uh, yes. yeah 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was not exactly planned, but this is from my classroom. I teach eighth grade language arts. And one <laughs> of the books we read is The Pearl by John Steinbeck. And uh, there was something that John just said before in response to basically the flow of conversation. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, so in the first chapter, I would say even like the first two or three pages, my students and I pulled out of that book, which is a really short novella, it's like 91 pages. We pulled out all these ideas that might be explored in the course of the text. And they're all really dropped in there, like either overtly or subtly in the first couple of pages. And I thought that was really cool because this is a book that we're still reading like, you know, uh, 60, 70 years later. And one of the things down here is just like, why do we still read things? Why do we still care so, so long after the first publication? And so what I'm curious, what you guys think is um, if we were to generate like a new list of ideas or concepts that you think are at play or maybe being like dramatized or brought to life or explored in some way, um, what are some items that you all think might be on the list for, we could say Twin Peaks at large or we could limit it to the return and they'd probably be different than most of these. But does that make sense at all? It makes sense. It'd be a lot. I was reading that list. Yeah. So many overlap. I mean, yeah. It, if yeah. you told me the list, then I would have believed you. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Really? Anything in particular? Well, I mean, I don't see the list now, but I mean, it's yeah, light, it's dark, nice. chaos. Um, um, uh, light, dark, good, evil, rage, <laughs> order, chaos, um, culture, community. Um, hmm. You know. All, a lot of those. Race is an interesting thing because that's one thing Twin Peaks tends not to address. Uh, and I, I've thought a lot about that. It, it, it tends to, to avoid that. Almost almost overtly avoid it. But anyway. But a lot of the other things are desire, the natural world, human nature. There you go. That's it. <laughs> I think technology is missing from this. I mean, obviously the pearl is different time and technology meant the different things. Uh, Steinbeck was concerned about his typewriter. That was his technology. Yeah. You know, that, that was it. But for us, and in particular, Twin Peaks, the return of technology is a, a core theme that's explored. I guess also, uh, if we're going with some that's not on the list before going to what is on the list, the one that I think of is uh, sickness, if that can be qualified, mm -hmm. because I think of uh, how even the earliest days of, um, of Lynch with motion pictures, I think of six men getting sick and how much that permeates, uh, I would say, the return for the, the Twin Peaks part, where it's like, you know, you have Ashley Judd's husband, you have the girl who just emerges from the car after Bobby sees her outside the Double R Diner. And there's like a lot of small parts that just kind of pops up and there's probably, maybe it's all scattershot, maybe it's unified, but it's sickness is something that I've come across and thought about in the realm of the return quite a bit. That's a great point. It hasn't been explored a lot. That's a really good, a, a good topic. I think for me, uh, what interests me making a list like this would be specifically focusing on the return and things that are in the return that aren't in Twin Peaks, which I think, some of the answers so far I've kind of touched on already because I do think some of the some of the things that the return deals with. I mean, even sickness. I I don't really think of 
I can't think of sickness being that present in Twin Peaks, the original. And I think for me, one of the big differences between the original series and the return is the concept of the passage of time and aging, because the original Twin Peaks is kind of timeless in a way. And it's a bit of the fifties, a bit of, you know, it's, it's very archetypal and it takes place in such a compressed timeline where you have about 30 days in this town. And even when you get the film, you're going like a week before um, whereas the return, you know, it also takes place over a couple of weeks, but there's so much built into it of the, the time in between the two series that we didn't see. Like we feel like strangers sometimes to these characters who we were so familiar with 25 years ago. Um, the stuff from the original series now being viewed through sort of a telescope of history. And that's really interesting to me. I think that's one of the most significant developments of the return where it brings something new to the table so so if, if joel was if joel were a student in my class at this point um <laughs> i would say what would be the, like the one word or phrase that could nail down what you just said joel phrase i think i could do because i could say mm -hmm. passage of time if i was just a okay. word um this doesn't capture all of it because mm -hmm. it isn't just about the individual lives but aging certainly yeah. Um, and then I think that ties into the idea of sickness because uh, a lot of the care, I mean, we do see the sick child, so it's not mm -hmm. just purely older people, but there is a sense of frailty to the return that is different from what we see in Twin Peaks. Um, all of those, all of those work really well. And, and for eighth graders, and even I would say for high school students, um, I can't believe I'm actually using my teaching materials right now, but <laughs> it's, it's hard for, it's hard for people to like kind of come up with a theme statement or to identify a theme that's not their first thought. So like to sort of revise our way into something like stronger. Um, but we, we try to put these into like nouns or abstract nouns or maybe like noun phrases and then use that as the start of a sentence. So I would say Joel or really anybody, and we're not going to, play this game for long but is there is, is there any word like perhaps the passage of time or something else that one of you were thinking um where, where you sense some sort of theme from the text where like your sentence would start with that word and then like end with a period um is anything like jumping to mind even like a weak version um if the one that i'm thinking of um is actually the very first one is family uh, and this is going through the lens of the return because uh, when I think of uh, the Dougie Jones arc in particular, where I know that that's one that's not like a, it, it's not a fan favorite depending on who you ask. But the thing that got me through it was that every time I watched the way that Dougie would interact with uh, Janie E or Sonny Jim, I would think about that scene in uh, mid-season two when he says it's taped to Diane that he hopes it's not too late to start a family. So I think of like how after being the Black Lodge uh, or the Red Room, uh, if you prefer, for 25 plus years, he gets mm -hmm. to not only experience that, but he also uh, gets to better their lives and the people around them. And I think of like how pivotal is at the end of part 16, where it's uh, he makes that decision that he's going to go back to Twin Peaks and subsequently what we see in uh, part 17 and 18. But the fact that he does leave it behind, it's like if he's doing the right thing in the moment. Uh, if the tulpa that he gives to them that we see in part 18, if that's like a well-worthy replacement. So when I think of like the character of uh, Cooper and the return, the family dynamic is something that comes up quite a bit for me. 
So if you had to narrow that down to one sentence, <laughs> and oh. the sentence started with the word family, um, what does Twin Peaks have to say or offer in your opinion? Oh, I would say the, the, uh, the word family as the rule. Okay. Uh, family is something that uh, Cooper, it's something that he wants, but also he's not sure if he wants his loyalties tied to with his family or with his, uh, I guess what he thinks are his obligations to uh, everything involving the Red Room and Laura Palmer. And then for your second draft, you would not be, you would not be allowed to mention any character directly, so you'd have to sort of abstract it a little bit. So on the concept of family, Twin Peaks argue Twin, Twin Peaks offers to us that family blah blah blah. I, don't know. I, I would say that in You're that case, school. yeah, in the case of family, then it's the uh, it's the choice of if you settle down for a more traditional life to help the people around you, or you try to go for. Uh, the obligations that you have or you feel that you have that are uh, that lie beyond it the appreciate that uh, at the risk of getting too personal um is, is there anybody here who had um who made family decisions or or who had a family sort of crossroad where you could per perhaps move your life this way or that way and you were able to either stumble into a decision or consciously make one. And if so, how did that work out? That's too personal. Does that make sense? In relation to like art or Twin Peaks or no, just, just, per just personally. I'm sure there is, but it would take me some time to think about yeah. it. That's a deep yeah. one, man. Yeah. yeah because because Cooper seems at at, at a crossroads um, potentially, and I know a lot of people have interpreted it that way. Potentially that he has you know maybe the the, the family route or some other route, and uh, I think especially in the return he seems to be at maybe perhaps a handful of crossroads. Um, but I'm going to pause just for a second. <laughs> I'm sure you'll steer us there the time. Hey everybody! Hi, Hi, sorry for coming in late. I'm I'm still I'm still in the grind. <laughs> you, you seem to be at a, a restaurant of some sort. I am. I I, I can't escape the double R. <laughs> I just can't I escape. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. it's good. This one I this background is from um one of my friend Diana who I was in Twin Peaks with last week gave me this video and it's like one of those videos where it just plays jazz in the background for five or six hours and there's rain coming down in the window and so in the winter i just keep it on all the time so cool if you, actually, <laughs> if you, i know right away i was like oh it's from that video that my school email account that that video has played for about like four thousand hours yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a very it's it, it makes it all very cozy. Yeah. So yeah, um, anyway, thank you for inviting me to join. Um, yeah, what a pleasure to see you, and uh, welcome to this uh, in-depth conversation on Mulholland Drive. So you got here just ooh, <laughs> excellent. And so I just you know I'm I um I'm I am still um doing a few worky kind of things, but I'm here, so I may get distracted a little bit, but but I'm here. All good. Yeah. And if you want to pop in or out or mute on and off. But okay. Could you just like everybody somehow managed to introduce themselves in like 15 to 20 seconds or so? Oh, yeah, sure. So I'm yeah. Allison Ivy and um, I'm talking to you from um, Marina Del Rey, California. 
um, where it's very pretty outside today. Um, I work for a company that makes movie trailers and um, it's a, it's a very successful company, but it's been pounded quite hard by the strikes going on. Um, so it's been a little bit of a challenging time um, in that way. We, fortunately we got some good work in this week, but it's, it's tough industry-wide for sure. Um, so um, I am the um, I'm the CFO, so I handle the money. So I have yeah I've had I've had the really uh, difficult work the last you know month or so, but um, I think it's it'll be fine. And um, and I work from home, so which is the double R. <laughs> and I'm wearing my absolutely magnificent T-shirt I got at the event last week, which was just. It was so great. I will forever be grateful that I got to go be there in person and, and experience that. So everyone was there in spirit for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah. Coming. And um, some people have some cool t-shirts on tonight. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good t-shirt collection club. <laughs> yeah. So what you missed so far is uh, me trying to make some decisions as far as how to like navigate the discussion and, um, you know, I'll, I'll make some slip ups and, and some good choices along the way. And we'll, we'll hopefully just enjoy it. And the, the first thing I'm going to do is pull two random questions that I did pull randomly ahead of time. And basically, if anybody sees anything that you want to talk about, just like jump right in either one. Hmm. And just I'm going to read it because uh, it probably this might be like podcasted. So the first <laughs> one is, has, has the giant received promotions over the past 25 years or is the fireman a separate being? And then I think mm -hmm. in part four, Mike or Gerard says to so-called Dougie, he says, you were tricked. And I'm just wondering by whom and like how exactly was he tricked? And is this are these answers obvious or maybe not so much? So we'll try this out. And if anybody wants to jump in, by all means, go for it. Outside of the text, the giant has received a promotion. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily help you. You're going to hate my answers. <laughs> Gerard, uh, the Mike Gerard question could be the remnant of two different creative personalities at odds with what the story was supposed to do there how's that <laughs> not what you wanted to hear well what what i want to hear is myself talking as little as possible ideally so but also like like if anybody wants to just be like i'll oh, just pass like get to a better question I'll just say that or just I, I, <clears throat> all good questions I think that the uh, fireman is the evolution of the giant and the way that the uh, the tree thing is the evolution of the arm, um, even <laughs> though it appears to be moving backwards in time in that case. Hmm. How so? Uh, I think that he is the same being, but uh, amplified, let's say. And I I'll kind of straddle the in-world and the out-world in that I would say I think particularly Lynch has new ideas about characters that he treats. I don't think he's super concerned with, you know, um, retconning, so to speak. I just think if he has a new idea about the character, he adds it in and mm. you're left to make sense of it <laughs> and reconcile it with what you knew before. Mm. 
I think in the case of the giant slash fireman, I think for me, I, I think it's probably worth addressing that when we refer to the giant, this is more so when Cooper sees in the original series. So it's really just on him referring to the giant. And then the fireman is more of like the larger aspect of who he is. And I know that time is very relative when you get to, like, the Black Lodge or the White Lodge, but when I think of Part 8 and, like, the and the fireman's role in it, I think of, like, how, uh, with Part 8, how that just permeates all of Twin Peaks at large for me. So I think that when we see, uh, when we see him in the original series, it's just a small part of a larger picture, and it still is like that for the return, but... I think that well, there's a, for me at least, there's a broader context of what his role is, uh, how he can talk to Cooper, how he can kind of, I guess, go between, uh, you know, both the uh, Black Lodge and uh, the White Lodge. Um, and as for the uh, the second question, I think of the, if it's referring to the someone manufactured you line, I actually think that for me, it's uh, Mr. C who created him. But the thing that's peculiar to me is that uh, Cooper, he gets, uh, or no, uh, Mr. C gets out of the Black Lodge in uh, early 1989, but we don't get anything about Dougie Jones till 1997. So the question I have in my head is, why was there that eight-year time frame? Was it like just a, was it just like a laundry list of stuff that Mr. C had to do? And uh, if, and if not, like why was it so hard to create the tulpa to begin with? And that's again the topic of tulpas, uh, I guess, in, in the real world, if you will, uh, on that matter. Hmm. And Anthony, when you use the word promotion, do you mean literally a, like a job promotion <laughs> from yeah, being a giant I, to a fireman? I, I think I think that's probably what I had in mind. Um, mm -hmm. What I was telling everybody else earlier is like my plan for tonight is to kind of bounce back between two types of questions. And one of them are like the questions almost everybody asks when they first see the show like the classic questions that many of which are still not answered. Um, and then the other questions are like random things I was thinking, driving to work while listening. <laughs> and so that was one of them, the promotion thing. I don't know where that came from exactly, but I think I think I kind of meant literally. So like that would yeah. imply he's part of at least some sort of organization to some extent. Or Yeah, well, he's got, you know, he's definitely got management responsibilities you know, I think in the environment that he's in. I mean, that whole, it's always been mysterious to me about the bank of whatever those units are, those machines, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of them. It sort of reminded me of those scenes in movies um, back in the day of the secretaries sitting in rows and rows of, you know, filing and typing and, you know, kind of a thing. So there's 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 definitely a managerial aspect to it. And I think, you know, he has a lot of responsibility <laughs> in 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 what he is whatever it is he's trying to achieve that's how it felt to me i, I love those things i i imagine um i know they're not meant to be like jeff like a bunch of jeffries or like but they, they seem like they could each house something like powerful mm -hmm. um when when mr c's captured in the cage under the watchful eye of briggs you have like floating briggs head and then like all all of those all of those machines are like called upon uh they're called into action at that moment to, mm -hmm. to maybe to maybe redirect him from presumably the Palmer house to um to the sheriff station and mm -hmm. I, I don't have really any other thoughts about that but it seems like all of that energy is like uh needed or or, or at least called upon to make that transition does anybody have any like in, in yeah, I, I, I do think 
So I, I think he went from counselor to fireman. So what does a fireman do? Put out fires. That's a critical role. Like if you don't have the fireman, it's going to burn down. So it, it speaks to the escalation of intensity of what is at stake between Twin Peaks, where it's essentially an investigation into a girl who's already dead. Uh, we solved the murder. How do you get tension after you solve the murder of this girl? And the truth is that he goes mad. So the man goes mad and and... I'm going to combine the answer to the last question along with this one. If I had to put it into a sentence, I would say that for me, well, speaking only for me, uh, the key theme of Twin Peaks, the redemption of the of faith in the person who has gone through the worst kind of trauma, witnessing the worst kind of trauma, the kind of trauma that you can't explain rationally. You can't explain why a father would rape and murder his daughter. You just cannot do that logically. And it wrecked every bit of faith that Cooper had in all the institutions of justice and mercy and, and goodness in the world. And I believe that that is what we are working through in the return mm -hmm. and the firemen. I, I actually have a whole section in my book where I lay this out that he could be the, essentially the shepherd of his frontal cortex, the frontal cortex oh, and human okay. being for the CEO function. Like we put everything together. It's where we associate memories with love and we make decisions that are based on higher self instead of just what the body needs, uh, which I would say is, is properly associated with the amygdala, the fear center, which of course, Black Lodge is a great, is a great, you know, uh, moniker for that. So for me, the fireman absolutely got promoted and that reading of it is purely psychological. It's purely contained within within the mind of Cooper. That's just how it's settled for me, and it sits right for me. I don't expect anyone else to to uh, agree that that's what's happening. But for me, that's that's where it's at. Uh, I've got a question for you, Josh. So, yeah. with uh, with that reading of Twin Peaks, do you feel that that's taking place on a subconscious level for Cooper? Because it's a fascinating idea. I'm struck by the way in which season two, he seems to brush over in many ways that aspect of it. In fact, he's the one who says, I think, to Truman, you know, any easier to believe a father would do that to the daughter, rape and murder his own daughter. And but he says it almost in a way of like, well, we so let's instead focus on the supernatural or whatever. And then he has that weird exchange with Sarah and all that. Like, so is your reading sort of that in the lodge, it bubbles up somehow, maybe with that confrontation of Leland or something like, I'd just be really interested to hear more about that. Cause I think I've struggled in some ways with how much the return is sort of Cooper's journey and how does it tie into his failures or misunderstandings in the original series. So uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> expand on that if you will. <laughs> Great question. Uh, and I will be interested to hear all of your opinions on this, mm -hmm. but at the heart of Twin Peaks is an irrevocable trauma. It's a terrible thing. Um, it's, it's hard to even convey. Imagine if you were that was your pitch for somebody to watch the show. No one in their right mind would watch the show if that was your pitch of what happened in Twin Peaks. Um, but the truth is that stuff happens every day. And imagine these police officers and detectives that actually go into these situations and have to wrestle with that just morally and, and spiritually inside yourself, it would wreck me. I don't think I would be able to do that work. And so just looking at it that deeply, I do think it's easy to brush it off like he does in season two. It's very logical, right? We've got to move on to the next thing, but he doesn't move on. He obsesses and ruminates over it. And it does bubble up uh, in dreams, of course, which is that's, that's where uh, those things that we sweep under the rug tend to come back and, and bite us in our dreams. And I think 
you know, that's, that's a lot of what's going on, not just subconscious, but it's also conscious. It's affecting his memories. Do you think that happens, I guess, in season three is almost sort of a reaction to the repression in season two, or do you think there's stuff in mid and late season two where he's, um, and of course, just to be clear, I think we're all on the same page. We're, we're sort of, I don't want to say imposing, but like retroactively sort of digging this out of the season, which was written by people who were not pursuing that theme. But, you know, do you see stuff there that has that potential for that reading that, or, or do you feel like it's more of a pushed away and then comes rushing back in like the season two finale and season three? I'll answer for myself and I want to hear everyone else. So I, it could be, I couldn't care less what the creators thought or what the writers wrote or what any of that stuff. I want to, look at a piece of art and have my own interpretation from it. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that out front. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in what Mark Frost or David much intended and what they put out. I am interested in how I perceived it. So um, yes, I do. I do believe that from season two to season three, there was a huge failure. And, and John, you wrote that great essay years ago on uh, Firewalk with me and, and the reading of that first 25 minutes or whatever it was. And that dramatically changed how I perceived the finale of season two and Firewalk with me in particular. I mean, I, I view Firewalk with me as a sequel, not a prequel to Twin Peaks. I believe that what we see in Firewalk with me is a man caught in a chair and he's going over his case files and he's making suppositions and he's trying to answer this riddle of how this terrible thing could have happened. And he gets lost in that dream. And at that point in time, he's completely corrupted from his soul and he's in danger of losing everything that he was. And, and that to me is, is the story that plays out in Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, I I'm, guess pop, too I'm popping in for three seconds just to say uh, thank you. Like, Thank you, Joel, for asking questions. And I love that. Just any any thoughts you have at all, everybody just like freeform it. And I'm brewing a cup of coffee, so I'm going to mute myself. But uh, please count and continue. But no, at first I would say actually, uh, Josh, that's a that's a really great observation. Also, Joel, I just want to also say a great question as well because um, if I had to pick the one scene that Joel when Joel is mentioning is that it is after uh, Leland dies and they're all just reeling from what happened. And, um, and uh, of course, uh, Truman, he's trying to figure out, like, how this could happen. And uh, so, yeah, Cooper says that it's like, oh, would, would it be, offer more comfort to say that a father could rape and kill his daughter? And uh, Truman, of course, is defeated, saying, like, no. And I, I forget how uh, Major Briggs phrases what he says to Cooper. But what I think says a lot about Cooper from what we see in The Return is that he says that it's important to get to the bottom of it as a as a, someone of the Federal Bureau investigation, and I don't think that it's a coincidence that the outlook that Major Briggs has, where he's in the White Lodge, like explicitly all the scenes are in like the White Lodge, and then uh, for Cooper, he's in the Black Lodge. Like even when we get to Part Eighteen, where it's like it comes back to uh, Laura and Cooper uh, when she's whispering in his ear. So I think that there's something about. Uh, whether it's Cooper's outlook in general or his uh, like allegiance to like a set organization, I think they're just something where it's like he wants to do the right thing, but he's missing a larger part of the picture. So that's my big outlook for the return. That's why I brought up the family part earlier. Is that you know he has this uh, you know he has this family that he could very easily uh, you know do better for their lives and uh, better them and better himself. But then he chooses to go back to this case where it's like he has to do it. Like it has to be like. I, I don't want to say like a 
I know the white knight syndrome comes up a lot, but I think it's just like for me, I look at it as that he's like looking at a small part of a larger picture, and it's uh it's uh, to his detriment. Now, I have a very small piece of like really silly trivia, not trivia, but like it was something that I looked up and Josh, it reminded me when you were talking about the Migdala, Migdala um, was that I don't remember why I decided to look it up, but I, you know, for me, I'm a, I'm a, a huge um, fan of the secret history of Twin Peaks. It's a, it's a book that really is with me all the time and I think about it a lot and so I one day I just looked up Cyril Pons I wanted I don't I don't even remember why but Cyril is a is a word for master and Pons is the frontal the um you know some part of the right and so I thought wow I mean it just for me uh, you know I think Mark Frost weaves through it in a way that um that is so present for me all the time like i think about that scene in the in the white lodge with all of that imagery and the mechanics and all of those things and i feel like that's so much the visual is so much david lynch but that there's such a deeper meaning to it and how mark frost is so alive in all of that i don't know it was just a it just reminded me when you mentioned that part of the brain josh and i was like oh yeah i there was there was something in there it pro i mean i don't know if he would ever say that that's what he was going for but both words both parts of the name have actual meaning master of the you know of the mind <laughs> yeah i didn't know that that's yeah one of those silly things that you know you just try to find I, trying to find meaning in, 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 in different parts of it. But I'm, I, um, I recently, Josh, um, had gone back to, um, listen to some of the episodes of the, um, the Twin Peaks Unwrapped podcast. And, um, I just was doing a random, like, you know, search for it because there's so many episodes in their, um, in their, portfolio you know in the whole in all of the years that they had been doing the show and all those episodes that I have not listened to all of them and the episode that I picked was the was the one that they did with you and I don't know had you were you on their show more than once yeah a few times luckily yeah that was love yeah those so I, I guess it was um I mean the conversation was about what you're talking about about hmm. Cooper's plight throughout Twin Peaks and, and how it related to meditation. And I don't know, I just wanted to say, since we're here, how, just how great it was, it was a really, um, it was a great episode, but how deep and, and, and it made me think about it in ways that I, that I hadn't really thought about it before. And that one about, I mean, Cooper as the central character feels very um, clear to me, hmm. even though I me think too. a lot of people want to, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, People make the story about Laura, I think. I mean, you know, as as wanting to point to a, a central character, but um, but I appreciate the the perspective of Cooper's that it's Cooper's um, journey. Hmm. The the word association that I always have with amygdala is hijack, because there's something called a amygdala hijack where like. You're, it's almost like your brain is temporarily getting like taken over um internally or maybe even externally so so mastering you know mastering control of one mind if one's mind is is sort of like the, a bit of an antidote to that to that hijacking mm -hmm. and that's something that happens when like i think when like court you get like a shot of cortisol shooting through your body and um 
Yes. It leads to all sorts of uh, irrational behaviors or, or, or people ruining their lives in like a five second bad moment or. And it happens during dreams a lot. Cortisol, you know, uh, when you have cortisol shoot through your body, it can happen very um, dramatically during dreams. (laughs) Yeah. So is what's the relation between cortisol and cortisone, the drug? Is is that just is there any? Uh, I don't I don't think so. I think those are separate. Totally separate things. Yeah. Cortisol. Cortisone um, is a steroid and cortisol is a hormone, I think. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, cortisol is a, you know. It's so interesting to think about these things in relationship to this because um, that, you know, cortisol uh, is associated with behavior and, and, um, and in your dreams, if you get a rush of cortisol, it's because you're, you you can be having a dream where you're in danger. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's interesting to think about. Dougie Jones has no cortisol. Like he, he doesn't react to danger. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Well, he does. He kind of reacts physically because he does when he grabs the gun from the guy when he's coming in and all that. But like he doesn't like seem to have any super strong emotional reaction, I guess. I mean, he does. He has, super- he has pleasure. He experiences pleasure for sure. Yes. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of the uh of the coffee, but actually I guess that could be Janie as well. <laughs> it's sure. the scene with her. He's definitely having a, a good time. But yeah, it it he, he seems like he can feel a sort of like muted joy, but but um yeah, you're right. Like there is no real he's kind of fearless in a way that even Cooper, maybe especially Cooper, is not when you think about the well, I don't know. I guess that's debatable. Yeah. Like, is fear his flaw in the season two finale? Like, is that what takes him down? I have a lot of thoughts. I'd like to hear some. I don't know. What do, what do people think? I, let's let's have. Okay, if I can do Anthony, because he said, you know, ask questions. <laughs> but I want to hear like roundtable. What's everybody's thoughts? Uh, I, I know John's written a whole essay about it, but like, what are people's thoughts on what kind of quote unquote brings Cooper down or traps him in the in the lodge in the season two finale. Cause it does feel kind of ambiguous and, and uh, you can almost kind of read into it what you want. Oh, I, I guess if I can start, I think of when, uh, when major Briggs, when he, uh, when he comes back out and he's, uh, he comes back to, he comes to the sheriff station and he's not quite himself. He says fear and love open the doors. And I think of like how central that is to, I guess, Annie and, and the season two finale, not so much for her, but more of what Cooper's going through because obviously Cooper, he has like a dime a dozen love interests. But in this case, in this exact moment, that is the first thing that he goes in uh, for the Black Lodge is that, you know, he has this love for Annie. And I think there's like, I guess, you know, like fear and love opens the doors. Maybe that's the inherent flaw in his case is that he's going in to rescue Annie. And then he has like everything that goes on uh, in season in season two, uh, the finale. And uh, they, so I think that there might be just like almost an inherent flaw right from the start of like once you enter the Black Lodge and the fact that he does have that imperfect courage uh, for once he does get in there. What does that mean, imperfect courage? Uh, well, it's sort of like in uh, in uh, like uh, in the middle part of season two when Hawk says that if you face this with imperfect courage, it will annihilate your soul. And I think that when he goes into into the lodge, that. Yeah, see, actually, I will say is that one thing that he does do is that 
he um sorry let me try like try to phrase this properly but uh but he when he does actually when Windermere says he'll he can trade his soul to save Annie he does say yes but I think there's just something about confronting his actual doppelganger where there's uh it's like in the case of Mr. C is that there's these dark repressed aspects of Cooper because when we see him in the original series he's very upbeat he's very chipper uh there's little moments of vulnerability that can chip away but there's not like this dark, like the most dark suppressed aspects that are coming out in any way. So mm. the fact that he has to confront it is some that he just can't really quite grasp. I would say if we had to compare, it's sort of like with Laura in uh, Firewalk, because for me, I look at that movie as like, she's confronting the worst of her fears in terms of like, who is her abuser and how she's going to actively pursue, find out who it is against all odds. And of course, taking the ring as well. So I think that Cooper, in a very small trial, uh, he found a way that he, he ended up faltering in that regard. Um, sorry, I, I don't know if that's quite answering the question properly, hmm. but was there anything I should build off of or anything I should follow up on? Yeah, I'll, I'll go next. I think that that really made a lot of sense. Um, it just reminded me of like trying to walk a high wire, like like you better not screw up if you're going to go on this wire. Is that is that sort of the idea of going into the into the lodge or through the curtains? like? you best not screw up because the, the imperfect courage concept is always a little bit uh, fuzzy for me, but for the Good first question. time, for the first time, like just now and, and and you talking sort of maybe solidified it a little more or reinforced it. I was just thinking um, maybe he gets stuck there because uh, that's a place where you see all the, all the things that are happening inside you potentially. And, and, which one or two or zero of the six of us have looked that deeply, you know, that deeply and that nakedly within to see like all the stuff that's in there. And it's possible that he just couldn't, I don't, I don't necessarily think this is the case, but he, maybe he, that's where you see what's inside. And a lot of us, a lot of people can't handle that. You know, who here could handle that? I mean, <laughs> perhaps if, yeah I, I think i was expecting josh to raise his hand because i know he's <laughs> a lot of time in stillness but who knows to what extent he's that's cover i don't know if you're covering something but that's hard to handle i would think what do you what do you think oh, it's ugly inside it's ugly inside buddy yeah, it's ugly. <laughs> yeah. i guess sort of on that note uh and this actually comes back to laura how she uh confronts her adversity I even thought this before I saw Firewalk with me and read The Secret Diary, but both of them actually reaffirmed this for me. I think of her doppelganger in season two, uh, where it says, she says, meanwhile, and she's just screaming, and she just, at, you know, the way she's, Cheryl Lee is moving her body, just like behind the chair and running up. I always view that as, there's just like, uh, it, it's just like what what was in Laura this whole time, just in terms of like the the, the trauma and all the conflict that she was dealing with. And I think of how in Fire Walk Me, when she gets her angel, where she ascends, but then all this, uh, all the terrible, uh, I guess the, if you had instilled all the trauma and everything bad that she was dealing with, it was like, certainly from 12 onward, that, that's all instilled and just stays in the Black Lodge. So I think that that's, uh, it's like Cooper, not only is he seen his true self when you see his doppelganger, but he's also in a lot of ways seen like what Laura had to deal with and, uh, and just like how how much it like it just like was like just crushing for her um again like like i said if there's anything i wants to build off of or challenge or anything like that please feel free 
I'd like to chime in a little bit on the imperfect courage thing. It's interesting you brought it up because I've, I've never really thought about it too. Um, I've never given it, I guess, a lot of direct thought, but it's always troubled me a little now that you brought it up, the idea of imperfect courage. Um, I think it actually can tie into season three a little bit, but you know, who, who has perfect, uh, you know, who has perfect courage? I, I, I'm not sure there, I mean, it was, it's, what Cooper's being tasked to do at the end of season two is to be inhuman, to go into this place and respond um, in an impossible way, um, because I don't think you can have perfect courage. I don't think any human being can have that. If you're a human being, you will be afraid. And so that's an interesting thing that happens there. And does he pay a price for being a human being? I, I think probably he does. And that's just he's being manipulated by the writers there and not by uh, a necessarily a well thought out uh, scenario of, uh, you know, uh, a world building. But, but it strikes me too, that we see a Cooper at the end of, of the return who is trying to project the idea of perfect courage as if he is a super being I've written about this and I won't belabor it, but getting back to some of the things we were talking about earlier one of the things I think that's striking is the way Cooper dismisses Mr. C. He turns his back on this part of himself that has wreaked havoc in the world and has committed these tremendously awful and heinous crimes. That was Cooper. That was a part of Cooper. And Cooper in part 17 ignores it. And in fact, he will not address it. He will not except it being part of himself. And I think this speaks to some of the flaw of Cooper, at least as he's portrayed in season three, is that he sees himself as something impossible and you can't be that. And I, I haven't really thought about tying it in to what happened at the end of season two. I, uh, so now I'm just thinking out loud and all of this is sort of stream of consciousness, but, but the elements are there as, um, in some ways, Cooper behaves in part 17 of The Return as if he should have behaved in the last episode of season two. And I still think that's the wrong choice. I, uh, he, he was trapped by plot in the end of season two. Uh, but he wasn't necessarily behaving uh in a way that anybody, you know, that none, of, all of us would behave that way. Uh, it's, it's just again, I'm thinking out loud. But what we have, see, what we see in Cooper at the end of uh, the return is a Cooper who's trying to be perfect, and that doesn't work either. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Oh no, sorry, Joel, you go on. Well, I was just gonna say that's really interesting because when you started talking before you even got to the point where you said that. Uh, you know, Cooper is trapped by the plot. I was thinking, I don't remember what it was that uh, someone said, some, maybe something Anthony said that, that triggered this, but I was thinking, you know, Cooper's kind of being punished for the sins of the narrative in a way. The character is is being uh, made to bear this burden at the end of season two for things yeah. that he, not so much he as a character did, but that the writers did in brushing past the murder mystery or the, you know, the, the trauma that spurred the murder mystery and trying to come up with this other narrative. And then now almost um, 
you know, Cooper, Cooper bears that burden. And I think of that specifically in the context of uh, Martha Nockhamson's book, which to me, I think has that more than anything has influenced my reading of the Black Lodge. Um, certainly John's essay as well. The um, half, I think is half the man he used to be about Cooper being split, but specifically the way that like Martha Nockhamson writes about the two scenes of Cooper in the Red Room in all of the original Twin Peaks, there's only two. There's his dream and then there's his entry in the finale. And they're very different. In the dream, he's very receptive. She codes it in a very sort of gendered way where it's almost more feminine in a way. He is like on Laura's wavelength. He's listening. He's watching. He's going with the flow. He's smiling. And in the finale, it's this effort of like willpower to save someone. Like it's a sort of a contrived, um, you know, very kind of frosty and uh, venture. I was going to say another thing I was going to say is I think Mark Frost is the one who came up with the idea of the perfect courage, imperfect courage, but it's interesting that it rhymes so well with some recurring Lynch themes. I mean, fear is the mind. I mean, I guess that's from Frank Herbert and Dune, but you know, Lynch did the mm -hmm. film of it. Fear is the mind killer and um, ideas that are present in maybe Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive of people unable to confront things in themselves um, certainly John's written about that a lot. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me the way that this kind of, um, almost like mechanistic sort of frost way of looking at confronting the shadow, uh, synthesizes in some way with Lynch's kind of version of that. But, but yeah, also just the idea that Cooper kind of is, he, he becomes this like, uh, you know, he's, He's kind of, I guess, because he's Twin Peaks at its best in some ways. He he is also forced to and to uh, bear the burden of Twin Peaks at its worst, maybe as well. So, so just I'll, quick quick follow up, and then I'll I'll stop. So one of the some of the things you said, uh, Joel, are really interesting uh, about plot and about character, about Lynch, and about Frost, <clears throat> and about the two red room scenes. So you have the first red room scene, which arguably is a mental scene that takes place in the mind, takes place in a dream. Um, you have the second red room scene, which is a physical, literally he's physically moved his body into the red room. And I think if you, I think Frost wanted to have that happen and he wanted Cooper to pay a price. I think Lynch also thought that way that if now Cooper's going to enter this mental space, but enter it physically, he has to pay a price. Lynch and Frost may have thought differently about what that price is, mm. but whatever it was, Cooper pays a price. And, uh, and so I think Lynch might be thinking more like, you, you are not allowed to physically enter this space. This is a place of the mind. If you do, you're going to pay a price. And Frost was thinking of it perhaps more forensically in terms of just, you're dealing with mm. evil powers, you've gone in there, and now you're combating them, you're going to pay a price. Mm. Either way, it works. And that this is how I'm going to sum up. <laughs> That's super cool. And I think, it, you know, it's it feels uh, oxymoronic <laughs> to me to say perfect courage anyway. I mean, those two things, because courage is acting in face of fear, mm, right? I yeah. mean, so, I mean, I always, it, it, what, what this discussion is um, making me think too is at the end of season two, like the, the part that might also, and this is conjecture, so I'll never know, but the part that's, 
perceived by the characters within the show about like, how would you know if he showed up with perfect courage or not? Because in the end of the return, the way that he's acting is so weird and um, it's not even courageous. It's like, I mean, you don't have, you're not, you're not acting with courage if you're not afraid. And that Cooper didn't seem to me to be afraid at all. The one in the end of the return, at least when he was in the restaurant dealing with the cowboys, you know, it felt very, um, I don't know, like no, like almost um, sociopathic in a way, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I, but I, I, the, that question of perfect courage, that's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a place to chew on a lot. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, and I, yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Gonna, oh. I'm going to exercise some uh, executive privilege. Do because, it, Anthony. Because I want everybody to, uh, um, I want to respect everybody's time. And I have no idea how long uh, everybody has. And <clears throat> this might be a good time to transition because I have two different questions here. And essentially what I'm thinking, and it's starting to pour. So let me shut this window. Wow. I, I have some people who, I would love for them to watch Twin Peaks. And if they haven't yet, they probably never will. But if they do, um, they're gonna have certain questions on the first go around. And and now I have before me all these people who've watched it many times and have thought about it for a long time. So I'd like to pull out some answers and nail some of these questions down for once and for all. So here are the two questions that I have for you. So hmm. we have, we have Laura in the red room saying, I'll see you again in 25 years. Meanwhile, and she does the hand thing. We have references to hibernation and Briggs in season three. And what does that even mean when she says that? And when she does the hand thing? Um, yes, I know these are interpretable, but let's nail it down for good if we could. <laughs> or <laughs> we have, well, this, other, just, we have just... this other question. And it is, what what? What is the Red Room, or when, or where, or who, or what, or any of these questions could be attached to the concept of the Red Room. So if anybody wants to either extend what we were just talking about or take these fresh, uh, please jump in. I'm, I'm going to jump in real fast. Mm -hmm. I think Lynch actually answers your first question uh, in one of the behind-the-scenes documentaries of the making of The Return. He explicitly tells McLaughlin, no time has passed for you. Mm -hmm. So, So... Cooper, when he comes back, is still in 1989. Uh, uh, 25 years have passed outside of that. And this gets to the whole topic of, and I won't, I won't go into it in detail, but beginning of our conversation tonight, we were talking about uh, the past. We we're talking about, um, you know, the old show and the new show. And, and one of the words uh, that we didn't use is nostalgia. Um, and so there's that sense of, you know, are we stuck in the past? Are we present in the in the present in the present so anyway i think at least lynch's idea is that um for cooper no time passed I, that may be different for different people who might go in i don't i don't know i don't know what happened when andy well he didn't really go to the red room but anyway um as for the red room itself the question i'm just going to say i honestly and truly that is a question i don't think can be answered okay, not, I, not I guess you want I guess when I think of the, uh, particularly the hand gesture for Meanwhile, it was, I believe it was his name on Twitter, or I guess now X, was, uh, is a uh, Faded Colossus. And he made this observation that the hand gesture that uh, Laura makes in the season two finale 
Uh, believe it or not, Ronette actually makes at the end of Fire Walk with me. It's the part where she's uh, knocked unconscious, and uh, and Leland once he gets out of the train, he he actually just kind of nudges her over with his foot, and she does like this. And I just feel like uh, Lynch was very deliberate when he did that. And I also think of like with uh, Phoebe Augustine being in Part Three, if there's any connection, just because. Uh, that scene in the beginning of part three is like, I think one of the best parts of the return for me. So when I think of it, I think of like Ronette's role in it, because I think of her as a character where she's much more important than I think people uh, really talk about her. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it, but I think that it uh, pertains to Ronette, at least tangentially. Huh. What is the Red Room? Or, or when is it? Or where is it? Or um, I look at it as, uh, I mean, I know this is how, probably just, how, I guess. How, uh, how, is it? how is it? How is this thing? <laughs> um, I, I, I think that since it's so omnipresent that for me, I just kind of like just almost accept it for what it is. It's just like, uh, I guess it's almost like, I guess we're looking at Frost because uh, there's a lot of stuff that was going to be pertaining to aliens, uh, at least, again, tangentially a little bit in season two. I think of how there's something almost like interdimensional about this, how how it exists and how it relates to the woods. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the the red room is one where I'm always trying to like think of like why it is the way it is. But um, yeah, it's I, I guess for me it's like it is very much timeless in and of itself, and that it just like the the rules that apply there do not apply to the world of Twin Peaks or the world in general. Yeah, Lynch apparently said to Martha Nockhamson, the red room changes depending on who's in there. So in a way, it really is a reflection mm. on psyche. <clears throat> How so? I think, um, you know, I mean, again, Lynch envisioned it as a dream space, I think, initially. Um, and... Uh, it, perhaps when you're dreaming, your mind does move to some other for lack of a better word, a dimension, or it, it, it goes to another place. Uh, and there is this red room, which I think other, I think Diane went to the red room. We know that Laura went to the red room. Some of the doppelgangers are in the red room. So I do believe it is accessible by multiple individuals, but that each individual perceives it differently. And Lynch may be being very subtle in that we can't always discern whose perception of the red room we're seeing. And is it automatically associated with the Black Lodge? I mean, is that, is, are those two things inextricably linked? You know, I think, you know, at the, at the end of season two, again, Lynch directed and really Lynch scripted, mm -hmm. uh, the little man says, this is the waiting room. Mm, so mm -hmm. I considered it to be some sort of liminal space that perhaps you can pass through it and get to the White Lodge. Perhaps you fail in it or you pass through it the wrong way and you get mm. to the Black Lodge. But it does not, and I know in, in a lot of discussion over the many years, and even I think Lynch and Frost have slipped up and, and, and referred to it as the Black Lodge. But I think if you really look at what they what they've put on screen, um, it, it does seem to be a space between 
those two places. Yes. Um, at least that works best for me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, like have to, that. I have to ask Josh for a favor because Josh is very good at um, like promotional materials and, and creating eye-catching stuff and uh, graphic arts and whatnot. And just so you all know, I'm going to clip different pieces of this chat together to present the definitive the cool. definitive <laughs> take your four hour big, uh, yeah on all the big questions that you've always wanted to know so, so that's, that's e to a box set right. yeah. <laughs> like like so uh, i guess please i guess for me the the answer to that is going to be an emotional one i mean one of the things that i got from my work with john on the podcast we actually had a great one where we talked about the different zones in twin peaks to return and one of the questions we asked ourselves were, what are we supposed to be feeling in these places? And as I did the, the recent revision to the book, I asked myself that in almost every single scene. What am I supposed to be feeling right now? I don't really want to explain what's happening intellectually. So I don't think of the Red Room as an intellectually explainable place anymore, as an estuary where love comes together with fear and mixes with memory and conjecture and strange elements that um, always somehow make sense in place of the scene, in context of, of what we're watching. The, the emotions are always there and they never lie. They're like the music in Twin Peaks. The music never lies to us. It tells us exactly what we're supposed to be feeling, even in its absence. And so... Uh, that answer to the to the red room question is not an intellectual one to me. It's an emotional one. Mm -hmm. Love that. While while we are in the process of nailing things down, um, you know, I know you know, you know when Laura's transparent face appears in the doorway to Gordon Cole when he's in the hotel room. Um, what is that? That's a neat question. <laughs> I mean, it may honestly, it reminds me of the scene in King Kong where he's looking through the window and the people are looking out at him. So I kind of love that. It's like the iconic presence of Twin Peaks, you know? Laura Palmer is as iconic in Twin Peaks as King Kong is. <laughs> well, I've written a little bit about it. There's a lot of crazy things happening to Cole in that particular part. Um, he is sort of coming to realize that uh, th there's more to the mystery of this case uh, um, than even he thought. And so I, I, I struggled with that when I was writing about it because that's a very confusing and difficult scene. But I, I guess for me, the way I came down on it was that, um, that the trauma of Laura Palmer is still out there and it's still resonating. And this was sort of a literal manifestation of that because, and the trauma of the world, the idea of, I perceive Judy as being a representation of pain. And, um, and so Laura's crying image illustrated to Cole that there was distress in the, in the world. And it, it was, it was concentrated on, this case was that they were pursuing one of the things that i think of i think of how the the scene particular that's used because it is the scene fire walk with me when uh when laura goes up to donna asking are you my best friend but i also think that's important that 
at least from what I can recall, that it's mirrored as well. So when I think of like how there's certain things that are mirrored in the return. Uh, one of the another firewalking example is uh, part 14 when uh, Andy sees the fireman and you see the two angels where like one is like what we see in firewalking and the other is mirrored. I kind of took it as that there was like two different realities that are going on. And I know that's a whole different thing in and of itself. But I also think of like just uh, the dire, uh, like the dire straits that Laura is in. Because the last time we, I guess, really see her is uh, when she's taken out in part two, when she just sucked up like into the ceiling effectively. So I think there's something about that and that Gordon Cole, probably even because the drawing that he's doing at the moment where he's tapping into something higher. But once again, I don't know if I can fully articulate it, but these are just the things that uh, come to me when I think of that scene. And today, you know, I, I um, happened to, I was, I had to go into the office today and um, I was listening to a podcast and there's a new book recently that came out by a woman named Naomi Klein called Doppelganger. Yep. And right. And so, of course, the title was very curious <laughs> to me. And um, so I listened to, I got to listen to maybe like 15 or 20 minutes of the interview that she was doing with Kara Swisher. And it was fascinating. Of course, the book is is not specifically about doppelgangers, but she applies it. And she was talking about how, um, about doppelgangers and the mirrored world that you have when you're a doppelganger, which of course is a Twin Peaks theme kind of. But, um, but um, you know, the whole part about like, Colin just mentioned that it was it's a mirror image of Laura, right? She's flipped the other direction. And so something about it to me was always that he uh, I didn't think of it in this way, but because I but just when Colin said it was that he opens the door and there's there's something about it that he sees in himself, too. I mean, I feel like throughout the return, especially that there's there's something about Lynch and the actors, you know, that it's not about the characters, but it's his connection to the actual people. I, you know, I feel like the scene where he's walking with Kyle and, and Laura Dern, and they're all like kind of marching forward. There's something about the connection of those actual people together that is outside of the, the world of Twin Peaks. And so I think when, you know, when he opens the door and he sees her and he's having, as you all mentioned, he's having perceptions throughout the whole thing you know he knows when Diane's going to be at the door he is he's he's right he's he's so tuned in his character has always been a little bit mysterious to me but that he, there's something about her character reflects something back to him about himself mm -hmm. yeah that's good yeah. Mm -hmm. thank you <laughs> yeah Josh, Josh so interesting See, Josh thought that was an evil question, but that was okay. <laughs> he's, he's that, no problem. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to read that Naomi Klein uh, book. I was just looking it up because I've enjoyed some of her. Um, oh. I guess comment. I've never read her books, but I've you know heard her commentary quite a bit over the years, and mm. uh, interesting for sure, Joel. <laughs> I would think that yeah. I mean, just even on the little bit that I know of your <laughs> tweeting around politics, that it's a it's a it's gonna it's gonna be a good. I think it's gonna be a very good read. Is her doppelganger Naomi Wolf? Is that who Correct. she's talking about? Okay, I think right because the two <laughs> I of them. Thought, who get... else? Who else could it be that she would be talking about? That yes, like her opposite. The people. Okay, that's fine. Hundred percent. Sorry, you can cut that part out, Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> I had to ask because <laughs> I read yeah. the description while you were describing that, and I was like, mm. "That has to be who she's talking about." Yeah, but I mean, really, in the little bit that she was oh, in this funny. interview, I mean, yeah. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is Twin Peaks!" You know? Yeah, I mean, no, that's great. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. And of course, with Mark Frost, 
you know, those two things that so much of it is, you know, between his, his um, theosophical, if that's the way you say it, theosophy, um, his interests in that and, and, and politics, it all kind of mushes together. Not to go too off topic, but does anybody know um, if he, how he's progressed on his book he was writing about? I know, about I wonder all the time, Joel. <laughs> is is that like, has that actually, I mean, you know, so many people announce projects that then never get done, but it's like, that's is that the something Krishnamurti, that's actually, right? Krishnamurti, he, yeah, I yeah. couldn't think of the name, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard oh, any more about it. Okay, yeah, because it was in um, uh, David Bushnell's book and then, you know, that the pandemic happened and everyone's brains were scrambled and new mm-hmm. things, things fell away and new things arose. So who knows, right. <laughs> including maybe wisteria, but that's a, that's another topic. <laughs> I pretty much only know the name Christian Murti from, from most directly from Josh who retweets quotes from uh, Christian Murti. And, and those quotes are always really, really interesting. Awesome. Totally. And, uh, <laughs> My shoulders are brand new. I'm wondering if Josh or anybody else could. The next, I was just going to, sorry, one last thing, that random funny idea I had. The next Barbenheimer is going to be uh, Mark Frost coming out with Krishnamurti at the same time that Lynch comes out with his Maharishi documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's actually a war I've uh, kind of had to bring up to in my TM circles because I'm a huge (laughs) Krishnamurti advocate. I've read his stuff for 30 years now. Very, very influenced by him. And then, of course, you know, the the Maharishi stuff with TM. It's been interesting. Uh, but I only okay. approach that. <laughs> Does any of that help with um, my new question that I've added here? Is about Candy, who's the source of oh. endless fascination for me. <laughs> and I know Colin just had a, a whole episode devoted to her. Yeah. But um, it, is understanding Candy perhaps like the some sort of key is, is it important or maybe really important anybody any thoughts i mean okay i guess it's uh i, I guess like i i had a bit of say to about it both uh, with the episode i did this week and of course the episode i did with you on the mitchum brothers i think that actually she's very central to to the vegas storyline uh i guess in uh to give a cliff notes version i think of like how her relationship with the mitchum brothers and also the fact that they're <sighs> sandy and mandy who just kind of seemed to kind of be there, but it seemed like uh, Candy's called upon more so by far out of the three. So I think that, uh, I guess like uh, to, to adhere to the whole Cliff Notes version, I think that she's doing for the Mitchum brothers what up until part 16, Dougie was doing for uh, Janie E and Sonny Jim, where she's very idiosyncratic, maybe even frustrating for people to deal with, but she seems to bring out the best in people. And I think of like in part 17 where we don't really know what Candy does after these events, but I would think that she sticks with the Mitchum brothers and it, like it, it brings them from being hardened criminals to being like these these guys with a more soft side. And um, so I think that uh, like, to look at Candy, you can learn a lot by looking at her and Dougie Jones and vice versa. So again, I'll try to keep it short, but that's that's my outlook on it. Yeah, I mean, I just have a sense that really digging down and, and grasping the candy character is is like it's not, it's not like the final key to the final lock but i feel like there's maybe it is like like maybe but probably not and, and i i understand i know i know there's not a final key to a final lock but the title for this video is going to suggest as much so <laughs> it's, it's I, definitive interesting uh 
Candy uh, always fascinated me. I didn't write enough about her, but I, I theorized, I guess, to myself that she was the Dougie version of Diane. So you had a Cooper in Dougie. Can, and you, can you say that again? Because it muted just for a second. Can you? I, I kind of sort of, I never pursued it, but I thought about the idea that Candy might be the Dougie version of Diane. So Diane is there with Cooper, and they're both these sort of, I don't really want to call them absent, but they are on a different plane than the rest of, of those, uh, of the people around them. And they are, they do seem to exude goodness about, there's, there's, a, there's a goodness uh, to them both. That's cool. Um, run with that a little bit, as far as just like a couple little small details about candy. Run with that as a possibility. Anagram candy, it's Diane C. How's that? Okay. Um, oh, that's good. Um, uh, you know, she hits one of the, I forget which Mitchum brother she hits with, uh, well, I, mean, I forget which name, what, what his name is, but it's not Rodney, it's the other guy, or is it Rodney? When she hits him with the- Rodney, yeah. Yeah, she hits Rodney. She's terribly upset and, you know, she's devastated with what she's done because that that behavior should not this should, this should not be something that she would do. She actually hurt someone. She's not that kind of being. And you see that in Dougie, too. Dougie is, with the exception of Ike to Spike, obviously coming out to try to assassinate him. Um, you know, he's not going to harm anyone. He's 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 um, he's pure goodness. And I think. Um, you know, it, um, you know, one of the things I've thought about is that Diane is a haunting presence throughout the return, that Diane is there following Cooper or paralleling Cooper. And so one way of pursuing that idea would be, could, could she also have been there in Las Vegas with, with that version of Cooper? At the same time, I would also argue that maybe Janie E is the version of Diane that needs to be there as well. Mm -hmm. They are, they are explicitly co connected as being half sisters. So, so there's something going on there as well. But, um, but I, I, I think the portrayal of Candy was, was deliberate to parallel the the behavior of Dougie. Good. Yeah, I also think there's a there. I mean, it's obvious, but about the childlike behavior, and I think recently there's been a guy that I've been seeing on social media who interviews children, like little kids. It's like a it's like at recess, you know, and they say the funniest things that sound ridiculous, but they're just so pure and innocent. And, you know, in that thing, when she's talking about how the cars were all lined up and, you know, when you see a, a grown up say things like that, you think, well, you know, like out to lunch. But if you hear a five-year-old say it, it seems really normal that a five-year-old would have amusing about something being so fantastical. So there is that just real pure childlike innocence, you know? That, that enthusiasm for life. And also too, I think it reminds me too, my, my very close friend has a young daughter and she did something that my friend was very unhappy with her about. And she was, she couldn't stop crying. She told me she was so remorseful that she just couldn't, it was like, she was just inconsolable because she felt so bad that she hurt her mom. And so I think about that when, you know, when she hits 
um, Rodney, and then she's inconsolable, right? She feels like, like you said, John, she just can't believe that she did something to make her daddy so upset, you know? Yeah, it's, it's really at the end of, uh, mm -hmm. just say, part 17, where she comes in and obviously something big is going down and there's all these people and it's dramatic and, and you know there's a dead body on the floor and she's like well right. i'm glad sandwiches you know that's response <laughs> to it i can help out with these sandwiches right so funny yeah, and i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna bookmark one question for later and that is she gives she gives rodney the cut with the remote control and then later that cut has sort of like mysteriously or magically disappeared. And I'm wondering if somebody had like a remote control of sorts to, to remove that cut or how that happened. But we, we could get into that later. Um, but I, I have I, yeah, I have a couple, a few, a few thought, few sort of like almost like footnotes, like they're disconnected musings on this on this subject. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is I'm kind of fascinated. So like john and many others um certainly like cameron cloutier and all these other people they have they they watch twin peaks when it was on and they have these stories of what people thought while it was on and i'm always fascinated by that because i missed it you know and that i was like six or seven although i've i've since learned that um um andrew grievous who runs 25 years later was younger than me he was five and he watched it at the time which like boggles my mind. That's like a weird like paradox. Like this person who was younger than me somehow watched Twin Peaks in 1990. Like, anyways, that's a side well, he, subject. He was, he, was smoking, <laughs> he, was, he was smoking a pack and a half a day at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know how. I don't know what his mother okay. was smoking to I let him watch it. So, so, anyways, though. Um, so, so it kind of fascinates me. You and Colin are in a somewhat similar situation with the return where you caught up with it after the fact. So like there was these things that like people talked about while it was on that I feel like once it got quote unquote resolved in the, at the end of the show kind of never came up again. But one of them was this theory that candy was the Dougie version, like, like um, John was saying, but of Laura rather than of Diane. So, like, I don't know if people thought that literally she was going to, like, manifest into Laura at the end of the series or what. But it was like, this was like a very, I remember, like, I, I was a guest on a podcast around part 10. And that, like, came up, that subject of, like, is she really, is, like, she Laura in disguise or whatever and all this stuff. So, it's, I don't know. that Again, these are, like, non-sequiturs, but I thought that was kind of funny. And mm -hmm. then um, John did actually touch on one of the things I was going to mention, which was, he was talking about candy as like a manifestation of Diane. And then the idea that, well, of course, Janie E is in some ways the most obvious kind of candidate for that in Las Vegas. So I don't know. I, I, I don't have anything to add to what he said about that. I just find that kind of fascinating. And then the other thing was um, this idea of um, oh, I, had a, I had a brain fart. Hold on a second. <laughs> um. Oh, what, what John also mentioned about the names, that Candy is like a weird anagram for Diane. And there was some conversation. I can't remember which one it was because we had a million of them. But John and I like went down a rabbit hole at one point of like how all of these characters' names are like weird. Like you can combine, you can like 
add a letter or take a letter away from Diane and you can make Candy, you can make Annie, you can make Carrie, you can make like all these different characters. No, um, and then if you take the letters that you like take away from the names, they like form Caroline or something. It's bizarre. But anyway, so yeah, random spurts of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And, I think uh, I have a thought. I have a thought yeah, on please. Or sorry, if you want to lead into that, go ahead. No, it's okay. Um, well, we were talking for a moment, I think, off off mic or whatever, about uh, things that we thought when we initially saw the series. And then, you know, as we went on and watched the rest of it, if that lingered with us. Something that always struck me, I went into Twin Peaks under the mistaken impression, and I do not remember when this changed. Um, but I went into it with the impression that the mystery was never resolved that like the show was canceled before they answered the question of who killed Laura Palmer. And that was like left, left hanging forever. So I, I kind of thought that's what it was going to be. And I'm always fascinated. And I get a flavor of this sometimes when I rewatch the pilot, this idea of twin peaks as something like almost akin to, I guess you'd say Inland Empire, because I think many Lynch's films, they do have like a particular reading that's stuck, like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive kind of do. But like Inland Empire, you still, you know, there, <laughs> there's a million theories of what the hell is going on there and nobody's ever quite totally resolved it. And maybe now with the return, Lynch has restored that sense to Twin Peaks. But when I rewatch the pilot, I'm struck by this idea of like, what if the show hadn't been picked up um, he'd left it with that cryptic ending in the red room or something or, you know, whatever, or just as the open-ended TV pilot. And the it, it would it would have such a different connotation of, like, this idea of, like, you can't know the mysteries of the universe in some way. You know, like that it, versus where it gets to, which I think is equally brilliant in its own way, maybe more brilliant, um, where he goes with it in, like, episode 14 in Firewalk with me when he's forced to answer the question, I think, you know, I've argued many times that his whole career, his whole kind of um, sensibility changes dramatically at that point where he's almost forced to answer that question. But that is something that, that I think of sometimes going back to the, the earliest viewings of Twin Peaks, my earliest understandings of it is thinking that it was open-ended and unresolved. Has that been resolved? Has that question, I mean, I'm sorry to be that guy. <laughs> has that question of who killed Laura Palmer, has that been like definitively resolved? Well, I think the question of like the Leland Bob entanglement, mm -hmm. as fascinating as that is, is a different question than what I thought, what I presumed going in was yeah. going to leave us, which is almost anything, anything, anybody like. You, and also, this is, this is, I think, a key thing. I talked already about the passage of time, but there's like a very paradoxical element to that with the return, which is the like reversibility of time. And I think those two things are tied together. So you asked before, it never got to me. I think only Colin went uh, under the Inquisitor's thumb, but um, it was that question of like, you know, put this into a sentence, put it into a sentence. And like the thing I thought of was... Um, the passage of time erodes endings. Um, 
And for me, the significance of that is I felt like Firewalk with me was very much an ending to the Twin Peaks cycle. And I still kind of feel that way, but you have to now twist around to get back there because, you know, the return leads you in different directions. And I just feel generally like I, I, I never was unsatisfied with season two finale as an ending. Um, it felt like for most of the characters and Firewalk with me as an ending for Laura Palmer and Twin Peaks as a whole, and maybe in some weird way, Cooper. Uh, I always felt like the season two finale uh, kind of felt appropriate in a way of, of, of putting these characters in these places and leaving them there. And those were, there was something final about it. Um, Mark Frost had an interview in like 2010 or 2011 where he says, you know, Twin Peaks is sort of like Sopranos. It, uh, it ends, but it doesn't finish. And then he says, or, or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it finishes and it doesn't end. But, you know, th there was this idea that like, you have some sort of dramatic crescendo that's reached in the season two finale. And I think by coming back and firewalk with me in a different way. And then I think by coming back to it in season three for me, and again, this would be different for both Anthony and Colin watching it after the fact and kind of all at once. But for me, it was like now, and I thought of what word to use. I'm like, does it erase the ending? Does it eradicate the ending? Well, not exactly, but it does erode it. It does kind of give a sense of like with the passage of time whatever resolution you thought you had is now kind of slowly worn down here's shelly and bobby they're not in love and together anymore they're at the diner but there's something new going on here's you know um andy and lucy they are a little more you know they, they are kind of on the same plateau they reached in at the end of season two but still they've aged their son has been born grown moved away whatever you know is going on with him and and all these other characters it's like well life just sort of continues you don't have these sort of endings until you know you die in life and um that's an interesting thing the return does and at the same time it does another thing which is instead of just saying time inexorably marches on and you know um erases whatever sense of conclusion you thought you had mm. or closure it also does this thing where it almost applies that logic to the past it says and in addition to that you can go back so maybe it's not a paradox maybe it's like a maybe it's a continuation of that idea you can go back into the past and change the past and and change what that meant and therefore change the present so that the present you know and we can get into all of that if you want you know final dossier and all those ideas but there is this idea that like it's almost complementary in a way now that i think of it in that sense it's like by carrying on in time and uh and and eroding those that sense of finality that sense of closure you're also changing what the past meant and they make that literal within the plot but i think there's also kind of a conceptual way in which it's true i guess uh on the on the topic of time uh because uh i i think of um uh this is going to tie back to where we're talking about the red room in particular but to me the final scene in all of twin peaks is the last scene fire walk with me and I remember me and Shirley Ladder, we actually talked about it. And one yeah, thing that I agree Greens, as well for me personally, yeah. And one thing that add greens to it was that I think it was in 1991, Shirley Ladder was like, I think she was like running the UK's uh, Debbie Harry fan club. And the thing that's worth addressing is that 
there was this rumor that came and went around the time in 1991 <laughs> that Debbie Harry was going to play a quote unquote older Laura Palmer. And there was no context to it. It was just that was just some that just kind of came up. And uh, and so Shirley Ladder, like at some point after Fire Walked Me, she thought, oh, this must have been the scene. So for her, that was something like early, very early on that made her think that, yes, this is the final scene in all of Twin Peaks. And uh, of course, you know, it's like, I, I know that, um, Joel, I think you do it. I know Stephen Miller did it uh, before the return where he'd watch the original series and end with Fire Walk With Me, uh, viewing it more as a sequel rather than a prequel, I, I think, in that regard. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know if I, there's much I can build off beyond that, but I just felt like it was important worth mentioning is that even with the return that uh, for all the faults and foibles that I think Cooper has, that there is, that we do still get that ending. And for me, uh, coming back to part 14 with um, that picture of Laura and then the angel and then the mirrored angel, I look at that as like two realities and that like even the other reality that Laura will still get that angel. So there's that great William Faulkner quote that the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And I think the idea of the return is ridiculous because there is no return. There, what, what is it that returns? Not, everything's different. Nothing is the same. There is no concept of re actual returning. So to call it the return was probably the biggest fake <laughs> uh, on, on the viewer. I think. Uh, but I, I will say that there is a character that we don't often talk about in Twin Peaks to return, and that is the viewer. The viewer, uh, as John has written about as well, is an active participant in orchestrating <laughs> and pulling all of this stuff together. There is no character in Twin Peaks to return that pulls all of this together. It is the viewer that does it. It's certainly not the director. It's not any of the characters, including Cooper, he has no idea what's going on at the end, and he would be the only one left. And in fact, what we see is a trail of dissemination, where you know, if we were to, to call fault on what happened at the end of season two, I would not say it was the failure of imperfect courage. I would say it was the failure to release his baggage. That was the very first episode John and I talked about in, in our house, was the baggage that we bring. And there's that well, lovely concept in Egyptian Book of the Dead mythology that when you die and your soul is weighed against a feather, if your heart is heavier than a feather, you fail and you go into the underworld. So that test of, you know, who is he attached to? Who is he going to save? Which of these princesses, Caroline or Annie or Laura, is he going to save? Uh, that was the moral failure to even make the choice. Uh, you know, that it's a very Buddhist concept, right? The, the concept of enlightenment means that you have given up both desire and fear and you walk between that path. Um, I find that to be very fascinating. I think it's a core theme that I take out of the return. It's definitely something that I think about all the time, especially in relation to season three. Can you say just a little bit more about that desire, fear, middle path thing? Um, so the, explain the, the that. The that yeah, the Buddha taught that it's attachment to the things of the world that actually root us here. And so to achieve nirvana, you actually have to relinquish all attachment to life, whether it's the people you love or the people you hate or the joys that you get or the sorrows. To be enlightened is to be above those things and to release, to be transcendent of, of those things. And Cooper was never that. I mean, that was his failure. And in fact, I do agree with John. He failed in the end. Those those choices that he made in the end still led him to this point where 
he had nothing left. There was no mission. There was no girl. There was nothing. He didn't even have a, a concept sense of self or, or even the mission it was gone. So I think that if we were to think of uh, characters that sit above at a meta level in the return, the fireman's obviously there. And I would say that Major Briggs is there uh, as these kind of shepherding agents. And they pushed Cooper into a trap that was for his own good, where he tried to save the damn girl once again, and they knew he would. And eventually it led him to a point where he had nothing left and there was nothing left to do but release. And that's what we get with the Fate to Black, at least that's what I get out of the Fate to Black. So I think I look at it as a much more Eastern point of view on this idea of detachment and, and releasing baggage. Can I ask a question of, a, of the group? Yes, sir. And relates to what I talked to Josh about before. Are, Why are, do there, you think... are there any objections to Joel? <laughs> group right Speak yeah. now or forever hold okay. your peace. <laughs> um, what do people, why do people think, uh, or what do you make of Leland being the one who tells Cooper to find Laura in the return? And that's all he does. And apparently, uh, there were rumors that like Ray Wise was supposed to have a bigger party, got to set, shot a scene. They were like, thanks, you're a rap. And he was like, what? And he's been sort of upset about it. But, you know, for whatever, for better or worse, that's his part in the return. Like, what do you make of that? I guess I'd be interested to hear people talk about. Uh, I, I guess I'll start. Um, I think that first it's worth mentioning about Cooper is that I think that uh, Leland saying find Laura, that's the major crux of why he we get to what we get to in part 17 in terms of why he feels like he has to, uh, has to rescue her. But I think the one thing that's worth mentioning is that Leland is just sitting in this chair for an indefinite period of time. I think there's some about the passivity and also the fact that he can't he can't quite confront what he's done yet. Um, I, I think, it's, again, it comes back to the whole idea of imperfect courage where you stay in the lodge, where uh, he, I, I think there's something about when he dies that he, it does seem like he does talk about as if he was possessed by Bob, but there's a lack of accountability still. Like, for example, I was talking about Scott Ryan a few months back where we had this ambiguity of like whether it was uh, Maddie and Laura were killed by Bob or Leland. But we came to the conclusion that uh, Teresa, she was unquestionably killed by Leland because, one, he had the motivation, and two, she never saw Bob in that scene. So I think there's something about uh, about how he's not going to confront, like, the worst, darkest aspects of himself, hence why he's effectively confined to the Red Room. Well, I will just jump in quickly. I I got to be careful because I've written so much about it and I've talked about it with most of you already. So I do think, you know, again, I have a very particular take on what happens in the return. So I won't get into it in great detail. But I do think Leland says find Laura because that's what Cooper's uh, – mission is he's got to find Laura and deliver her to a certain time and place. And so uh, Leland is, is just being explicit about it. Whereas the fireman, you know, was not the fireman was being uh, cryptic as the fireman will be. Um, or perhaps that's the way Cooper perceived it. But anyway, I, find Laura is literal. He's to go find her, not save her, which Cooper thinks he has to save her. 
He's just got to find her and get her someplace. But anyway, I mean, I could really expand on that. But... <laughs> well, let me oh, ask why Leland, though? Like, why would Leland be the one to say that? Um, I, I would say that Leland was the one to say that because he's still trying to, to find some way to atone for what his role was in the, the whole history of Laura. And if he could do anything to help uh, help her fulfill her mission, then he was going to do it. That's it. That's interesting because I feel like that's almost um, you and Josh almost have like opposite takes there, yeah. <laughs> in a sense, from what Josh <laughs> just said. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling for a new in our house now episode immediately. <laughs> Season three, make it happen. <laughs> Taking Laura Palmer to her home as if it were some element of safety. That is the worst place you could have taken her. That was literally where the monster lived who raped and murdered her. Um, it's so absurd on its surface, but somehow there's a subtext there to John's point, find Laura and take her home is the unspoken part of that, at least in Cooper's mind towards the end. The idea of solving the murder, it was done. They figured it out from a legal perspective. It was wrapped up and buttoned up why the need to progress further to understand why it happened. We know how it happened. We know what happened. But why the need to understand why it happened? I, I think it's a really interesting component to Twin Peaks that is, it makes it different than every other CSI or murder mystery. I'm watching Columbo now. They never mentioned that shit in Columbo. I can tell you that right now. Uh, you know, why? And that's what makes Twin Peaks different, I think. Well, I... Total side note, if if uh, Spielberg had directed episode eight as he was originally planned to on Twin Peaks, he would have directed an episode of both Columbo and Twin Peaks, but I digress. Ah, <laughs> cool. Uh, two, two real quick comments. It's funny that you mentioned the difference between uh, Josh and I, because Josh and I, it seems like uh, when we talk, it seems like we're completely opposite, but in fact, we're so parallel. It is kind of, it's kind of remarkable, uh, but... Um, um, I guess I was going to make another point about, uh, bringing Laura home. I think that's, I think that's Cooper's mistake there. I don't think, I think Cooper thought he needed to do that and he didn't need to do that. He, I think bringing her there was probably the trigger that was required for her to scream. And that scream is essential, um, and again, I'm going on a very specific theory, which most of you have probably heard me talk about before, and I'm not going to go into it again. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think one other comment, too, is and it probably deflates all of our thrill about Twin Peaks, just like what you know Josh is talking about, thinking about how it connects to this story from before the, the first season and the second season and and how it resonates through Firewalk with me. And I, and, I, and I don't discount that at all. I believe all of that is there. But I also believe that Lynch and Frost both, perhaps maybe Lynch a little more, kind of were like, you know, I don't really need to, to revisit what happened in those other. This is a different story. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just sort of Twin Peaks, the original material was sort of just foundational and they're building a new story on top of it and i don't want to dismiss it 
But I think sometimes we can get trapped by trying too hard to make it all fit together. Whereas in the return, uh, Lynch was, he had a story that, that I think thrilled him and it somewhat tangentially connected mm-hmm. to what he, or and he was willing to actually revise it to some extent and say, okay, well this happened, but, uh, now this happened and they don't have to connect. So, so let me, let me ask you, do you think, um, do you think if I probably not for us? Cause I think he came up with the idea and came to Lynch with it. But do you think if Lynch could have made a mini series or feature film, without tying it to Twin Peaks, gotten the funding and done it, that he would have? Uh, Instead instead of the return, let's say. Like, do you think Uh, the return was kind of an excuse for him to explore all of these different story ideas and themes and images? And because Twin Peaks, you know, at a time when IP was the thing, reboots were the thing, that it allowed him to do that, that that's what he tied it to, but that, theoretically this could have been something else if that makes sense it's an odd question to ask but no no it's an excellent question to ask and i do think yes i think that if well there's two 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 components to it if he had gotten the money and the funding and the cast and a network behind him or you know the streaming service behind him would he have uh, done it yes but only if he had what he would say is the idea that you spurred him on it got him thrilled with exploring something new and and i don't think he was thinking about twin peaks at all i don't think he was interested in returning to twin peaks at all and frost came to him and frost said cooper wakes up in an empty house and that was just the light bulb for lynch and then once lynch went back into the world he ran with it and it became as much about lynch's interests as it did about Twin Peaks. So you've got Sonny Jim's room decorated. That was David Lynch's childhood bedroom. You've got references to Kafka. You've got references to Francis Bacon. You've got references to Edward Hopper, literal scenes that are remakes of Edward Hopper paintings. These are all things that Lynch loved. And he had suddenly this chance to indulge himself and he took it. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's hard to disentangle because his opportunity to explore all of the ideas that he had kind of, you know, the eclectic ideas that um, maybe he couldn't get funding for, but also he didn't, I don't know. I mean, I assume that what, what was that screenplay he had written? Somebody said, Oh, this is the best screenplay I've ever written. It was like, or read, it was like 2008, 2009 or whatever, you know, post inland empire. And, but, but he couldn't get the funding for it. Um, I can't remember what the name of it was. I kind of doubt that it was like, you know, 50% or 90% Twin Peaks The Return and that he just put those ideas into Twin Peaks. So like, you know, for whatever reason, um, Frost's idea of Cooper waking up in the house was like the core that all this other, you know, that all this other stuff could like accrete around. So it is, in a weird way, it's sort of hard to separate Lynch had these non-Twin Peaks ideas and Lynch had a reason to return to Twin Peaks from one another. You know, as, as I, with all Twin Peaks, there's no simple answer. 
There's no simple answer, and I think it just evolved. I think it evolved beyond what they had originally intended. It was supposed to be nine hours. It was probably going to be tighter. It was going to be, you know, a, a different kind of show. And then <laughs> Lynch got the uh, got the money and got the freedom, and he he took it. He expanded it. Yeah, and, and the passage of time aspect only works because it's a follow-up to Twin Peaks, so that there is that as well. Something that's so core to the show is a function of it being a, you know, reboot or follow-up or whatever you want to call it. So you can't take that away either. I think they were trying to subvert the whole idea of nostalgia and fan service too. They wanted to address the idea of this isn't Twin Peaks and it's exactly Twin Peaks. If anybody... And that's a big if. If anybody's listening to this and can't see, um, they would not see that I threw a, a few questions on the on the shared screen. And these are just floating questions. If anybody wants to take the conversation where you want it to go or address any of these questions, all good. But I'm seeing you revise it in real time. So I was like, yeah, well, the zone is connected to the double R diner. And then they're like, oh, the <laughs> yeah. <bedroom>. I see. <laughs> so if, if anybody wants to play along at home, um, the, the questions are, who is the arm and what can we say about his evolution? Um, what's with all the spotlights in Twin Peaks? That's definitely something that kind of hmm. confused or baffled me. Similarly, this is a good like, question. the curtains, the drapes, the blinds. be there. You could put two and three together, I think, yeah. in a way. The theatrical yeah. element. Oh, okay. Um, be they, you know, be they noisy or silent. Um, and then the, what is what is the deal with the zone, which is like probably my favorite set possibly my favorite setting it's just i love it um is it related to the red room in, in any way or like just generally what's what's the deal i know it's located on sycamore but that doesn't mean anything um so any thoughts on any of these or if you know like i said take it in any direction um i guess for the first one is that uh for who is the arm um actually i think john i think you brought it up uh in uh wrapped in plastic where uh, I for for I it didn't cross my mind until you mentioned it, but it was in Fire Walk with me when um, the one armed man and the man from another place when they're in the red room right when uh, Bob slash Leland is there, and then the thing is that uh, the man from another place puts his uh, puts his hand onto the one armed man where his arm his uh, left arm would have been and says Bob I want all my Garmin Bosia, and there's something about with that and then also. In season two, when uh, when Mike he says that he he cut the whole arm off, so I think it's just that like the the arm I guess effectively represents the evil that he was uh, that him and Bob did, and how uh, he cut that off. But the fact that they're working together and to build off of to his evolution, I think of how at the end of season two, when the man from another place says, "Next time you see me, it won't be me," and like literally, it's like some different. But it's worth addressing that it's a uh, it's a tree that also has like electricity run through it, and it seems like there's wind coming through a place that otherwise is not windy. It's like this culmination of all these things that uh, I that to me that I gravitate to in Lynch's filmography at large. So I, I, I you know, actually, I guess I'll just say, you know, I'll let everyone if they have thoughts to say, please go for it because um, I just want to set that up as the groundwork of like what I see when I see the arm and like why we see him the way he is in the return. 
Yeah, I agree with I'm you. I'm, I'm, I just found it so confusing. So I appreciate any insight. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thanks. Well, just the idea that the arm was uh, the personification of literally Mike's missing arm. And, you know, I, I, you know, Colin said it all. Say so he cut it off. It was evil. It decided to go ally itself with Bob because that's the part of Mike that was already allied with Bob to begin with. And they continued on, you know, gathering Garmon Bozia. And, and, and uh, so, you know, sort of a, a literal, a literal take, I think. And again, I'm sorry, these are sort of deflating answers, but the evolution of the arm <laughs> they couldn't get Michael J. Anderson mm -hmm. yeah. to, the, to the role. They wanted him, and they and Lynch being Lynch, same you know, thing with uh, Philip Jeffries, you know, a, a different different reasoning for why David Bowie couldn't obviously participate. But you know, Lynch just um had, put some sort of abstraction in to represent that character. So the arm becomes a tree with a brain, I guess, and Philip Jeffries becomes a giant tea kettle, because why not? I love the idea. I can't remember who said it, but somebody pointed out that it's like the brain also could be like chewing gum, like that gum you like is coming back into style, <laughs> sitting on yeah. top of the tree. <laughs> Actually, John, I guess I have one question because I was mentioning that is that um, you mentioned that obviously Michael J. Anderson, he couldn't be there uh, because of a lot about behind the scenes stuff. But when it comes to everything pertaining to uh, the tree like quality, the electricity, the wind, do you think that, that those elements would have been found within the arm had Michael J. Anderson been in the return? That's a great question. I mean, hmm. I, who knows how Lynch would have, you know, we see Philip Gerard back. Pretty much the same way he was when we saw him in the in the original series. Um, so I, I think odds are Michael J. Anderson would have had that little red suit on, you know, because it's just so iconic. Um, he might have done some interesting things with it, though. Um, but the fact that he did what he did, like you say, with the electricity and the wind and the whispery voice, um, in some ways, it's uh, it's it's it. It gives us so much more than it would have had Michael J. Anderson yeah. been <laughs> Well, I also had the thought, um, and I feel like this has been discussed before too, but I sometimes get the sense that almost all of the stuff that quote-unquote Philip Gerard, which itself is weird because it's like, yeah. isn't this Mike? Is this <laughs> really Philip Gerard? I would think this was the spirit Mike, but he doesn't – I don't know. It's confusing. Anyways um, – I sometimes get the sense that he was only going to appear in part 17 and all of that stuff would have been done by Michael J. Anderson, hmm. you know, like hmm. all of the like guiding stuff in the red room and hmm. speaking to him from beyond the realm. Like I, I can't, I know I've, I've either discussed this with someone or I've heard someone discuss it, but I, I can't remember where, but like I, I've always, I, I kind of have the sense that like, they expanded and i feel like al strobel had a quote at some point that kind of alluded to that of like oh i i got to do much more than i thought or something like that like they brought his character much more into it to replace what the the man from another place would have done yeah and i don't know if you've ever been to any of his art shows i got very lucky and got to see one it was on display in a gallery near my office in hollywood it was totally random and um, the 
when I went to see it, the, one of the things I thought of was the evolution of the arm, because a lot of that, especially the brain part of it, I mean, a lot of Lynch's art has that, has big, clunky, clumpy, weird materials in it. And the way that it looked, I mean, it, it was, it, it reminds me of the baby. It's, there's, there's, you know, he, he has so many recurring themes of his art throughout his art, <laughs> right? So there, there is that, there's that too. But yeah, I, Joel, I like what you're saying because that make it makes total sense. Even though for me, like I can't imagine now it not being Al Strobel being the guide. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um, the Philip Gerard thing too is is weird to me because it's like for me the distinction has been, and you know, I think about this because I, I did like a whole character or am doing over a million years this character series of like different uh characters in twin peaks and how you delineate them and i kind of make a distinction between mike the spirit which would be when he's in the red room and philip gerard being the host in the real world and it throughout the return and actually in firewalk with me as well he's credited as philip gerard and i think people i, I John, maybe you had a commentary on this or something, but like people have interpreted it as like, oh no, actually that's the host. Like he died and now he's helping Cooper out in the real, in the red room or something like this. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's one more wrinkle to all of these weird mythological complications in Twin Peaks. <laughs> I think, I think just one quick commentary on that and I'll, I won't go into great detail. I do think it's one of the, 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 one aspect of the entire Twin Peaks narrative that was least thought through, and that is that just I don't think Lynch. Thank or you. Yes. <laughs> what Mike and Philip Gerard are, and so I don't think they understood it when they started it. It was just a fugitive reference. We got a one-armed man, and and then there was a Mike Bobby. You Mike, Mike and Bobby will have a reflection. You know, same names, and and then uh, it it just. It kept evolving and then no one ever really tried to tie it down even frost <laughs> who always tried to yeah. tie things down just sort of said forget it like why does the host look exactly the same as the spirit come on <laughs> right. i mean there's theories there's theories that like the the little man that went from another place is the actual mike and you can take it in interesting directions but it is clear that they were winging they just, it <laughs> you got away from them so I, I guess, you know, that's all interesting. I would say, well, what is the purpose that he serves is probably the more interesting question. Um, mm. You know, I'm not as concerned about why they made the choices they made. I'm more concerned about what's on the screen and how do we deal with it. And I think it's very clear that Philip Gerard in the return is a benevolent agency for Cooper. He acts in Cooper's best interest throughout the entire return. So for me, I just think like I'm I'm satisfied with understanding like oh this is one of the good guys. He's on Cooper's team and he serves specific functions along the way, mostly to kind of relate news from the liminal space or whatever the red room serves as there, and then to actually physically guide him down the hallway and into this chamber of memory where they can indeed manipulate time. He's there by his side as a representative. Mm. Uh, I think that's always important to keep in mind is what we actually get on the screen. 
I do love the idea and I don't, you know, as, as John and I have talked about this before, one of my favorite essays on Twin Peaks, the return is Tim Kreider's essay um, where he basically theorizes like Cooper is the murderer. And actually he's Philip, like Philip Gerard is the murderer. And he's like made up Cooper in his mind as like, you know, and I don't quote unquote buy it. Like I don't, that's not my reading of the narrative, but I love the lens that it offers. Um, I feel like a lot of interesting stuff of, comes out of that. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps unlike Philip Gerard, um, who might have been a, a good idea that was thrown on the table and then maybe never dealt with in such a deliberate way. Number one here that I've added to our list, this was deliberate, I will... I have to believe. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I noticed that this, what was, you had a different number one before, I right? did, I did. We just discussed it. So okay. I, I, okay. It. I like this, this one. I'm curious one to hear is, what people have to say about this. I mean, this is from part 18. This is, this has to, there has to be some intention. There has to be some deliberateness to this. So there's the, the, the 430 number, the 430 miles that, that they drive before they supposedly cross over. And then there's this idea with the two motels that um, Cooper and Diane or Richard and Linda, et cetera, et cetera, that they are in. And a friend of mine, Joseph uh, Paladoris, who I chatted with um, about like the sound design in, in, in Twin Peaks, he's, he's wicked cool when it comes to Twin Peaks stuff and, and other stuff. Anyway, he pointed out to me that just because two scenes are side by side, in the text, that doesn't mean they're side by side in time necessarily. So he had this idea that those two scenes were just different. You know, they were just from different portions in the story. And uh, I thought that was really an interesting idea that perhaps, you know, the second scene took place way earlier or way later. Um, you know, when 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 Richard gets the letter from Linda, but. Does anybody else have something that could really like nail this down for us? Because this is one of the great mysteries, I think, in the return and certainly in the mysterious part 18. Um, thoughts on that? For me, this is, I guess, a bit of a non-answer, but even after doing my Diane episode, I've come to the realization that the more I think about it, the less I can actually grasp it. Because uh, mm. I'm one of those people where it's like, I always like to try to have at least a broad stroke of how I feel about something, but the more I think about the logistics of going from uh, from Glastonbury Grove uh, to the car, even just like how they get the car is something that I uh, I just like, the one day I just had this tick, I was like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, and then like, you know, there's this kind of arbitrary proximity of 430 miles and then leading to the, the Odessa world. I, I know this is a lot of buildup for a non-answer, but what I what I thought like made sense in my head, like when I first watched it, and even on rewatches, but this year I was like, I just have to concede that I really just need to like think this through before I dive back in the return. Can relate. You bring up a great point, Colin, and I struggled with it a lot when I was writing about it because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, at least sense. <laughs> we would apply that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense i guess in a lynchian world but you're right the car appears out of nowhere they're in the desert they were in glastonbury grove i mean i just sort of dismissed it all as being in cooper's essentially in cooper's mind uh you know it's, it didn't there, there's ne the 
the word miles is never used in relation to 430. So miles is a completely arbitrary. Why couldn't it be 430 inches? I mean, you know, but Cooper says this is it, 430 miles. I, I guess... <laughs> I guess one thing that's uh, the mm -hmm. I, I even the very first time I watched part one, and I'm not even talking about part one, I'm talking about the first five minutes. But when uh, the fireman says like uh, four through zero, Richard and Linda, he's getting all these clues. When Cooper says, I understand, even like without even getting the return, I was like, how? Like, how? Like, wh like what? What could possibly make him think that he can possibly say he gets it? And I think when he watched part 18, it's hard to believe that he got it. So no, he didn't get it. He he thinks he, he he's more than he is. He didn't want. He was impatient. He's like, I understand, and he went, and he didn't understand. He was far away. Right. <laughs> Maybe he was he far away. I could Sorry. argue he did understand, um, which I'm not going to argue too strongly. But and, and at the risk of I can remember the first time I watched, actually looking up what gas prices were at yeah. the time, and where Maersk trucks, like he drives by a Maersk truck, a truck thing, and I'm, I'm looking at that, the difference in the the eight, the cars that he drives. I mean, there's like a 17-year difference, I think it was, or something like that, in between the car he drove into that old motel with and the, like, Buick or whatever it was he drove out of there with. It, it makes sense. It's, it's, it's dream logic. Of course it doesn't. So to me, that's all. And the all car, doesn't it, it sort of relates, the car relates to the secret history, right? Doesn't Dougie Milford buy... I can't remember the car, but there's a like he buys a black. It's a man in black, man in black kind of car, right? That Dougie Milford drives. I don't know. I I always associate those those two things. But also too, I mean, I this is a, another you know like my special sauce during the return was like just soaking up everyone else's theories because I'm not I'm I I just appreciate it so much and I love puzzle pudding, but I I'm I wouldn't say that I'm um, adept at actually coming up with those things. The, my thing was looking up the useless information, like the little details that might mean absolutely nothing. But one of them was Maersk, because I was really curious, why did they focus so much on that? And I found when I did my little research, right, that there's, um, I, and the story is a little murky, but the owner, somebody who was um, related to the company, named one of his ships the Laura. Like that was, the, there, there's a connection in there to the name because I was like, it's just a little piece of dumb, dumb, you know, return trivia, but yeah. But that whole timing thing, I mean, I, my husband and I just watched um, 16, 17 and 18 over the weekend. And um, it's always the same question, like how the frick? What year is it? Where? What day? We right? Where did the car come from? Like, what? How are they going? We have the same questions every time because there, it really, there is a gap there, a big. Mm -hmm. a big a big thing for you to just I yeah asking, i have a huge whiteboard and i was writing dates all over and, I'm trying to <laughs> and i took a picture of it and i put it on twitter and i actually asked mark frost i'm like did your did your whiteboard look anything like this and his response was i don't own a whiteboard <laughs> that's perfect I like, I there you go so, i guess we were kind of touch up on it more so about the original <laughs> series but I'm sure that we all at one point had this because we we're talking about the original series where it's like a day by day sort of thing where it's like over the course of a month. But was I the, I couldn't have been the only one that I believe it's in part uh, 15. That's when Mr. C goes to see Philip Jeffries. Like, was that you that called me five days ago? 
And there's this thing where I was like, this is all in five days? Like, how? <laughs> like, like, and I know that they go, there's a lot of globe trotting, but there's just so much to unpack. Like, when you think of, like, the magnitude, at least for how I look at the magnitude of analysis I apply to the return mm. compared to the original series, so, like, the, the, the sense of time is something that I, I oh my really uh, gravitate towards when I think of the return. Yeah. Well, th there's a fascinating uh, whole little, like, sub almost like subculture around <laughs> around figuring out the chronology of the return like mm -hmm. around 2017 2018 um when i was writing my character entries i like looked into this a lot and i kind of came up with my own system that worked but it was like very heavily based off like a dugpa post like the dugpa message boards rip um where they had like uh somebody broke it down like which because every episode it's weird. So like every episode is like a mishmash of chronology. Like you have Bobby saying like five episodes after he had the scene with his mother. Oh, I found something out about my father today. He gave me, you know, and it was like, wait, today? That was like five episodes ago. So like, it seems like they just shot stuff randomly, but at the same time, they're wearing costumes that match with certain scenes. Like, you know, there was some sort of continuity that the script supervisor had on set. So it's like, what is the actual chronology and in a way you can never quite work it out like it's supposed to be sort of paradoxical and confusing but it is sort of fun to tease out like when does each part take place yeah i need to i need to jump in because i have all these questions that <laughs> you want to keep going simultaneously um not even the ones i had written down but like oh boy um well, first we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna figure out what year this is in a little bit, um, but also um, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> when he, also, when when he does say that, it does, uh, I think, it does unlock something in Carrie or Laura, and it does allow her, in my opinion, based on the acting and stuff, her reaction to it, her surprise and like confusion or something her 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 chin like almost raised defiantly like all in order her scream he he did something there in that question i think that was successful in some way but anyway um what, what my friend joseph was pointing out with the two motel scenes side by side that they're not necessarily you know like in time in time order just because they show up on the screen that way I felt that was for me. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense because it's you know it's a it's, it's a text that could be edited and moved around. And the fun question I have in the back of my mind was, do you think all the scenes of the return, if they were placed in a different order, the show could be still just as awesome? Um, and then, that, but that's not really a question for now. And then secondly, like that taught me something about how we, we could possibly watch this show, um, especially when we're stuck things that don't make sense placed side by side. Well, maybe they're not necessarily side by side. And similarly, um, there's a part where Lucy doesn't understand how cell phones work when Frank walks in and she falls over and then she's like kind of crying to Andy about it. There's something where they talk about, like, is it about the bunny? No, it's not about the bunny. And I, I realize I'm rambling. There's something um, where they have the congressman's dilemma. <laughs> And in my opinion, all of these scenes are like maybe possibly trying to teach us something about how to like watch the show or maybe trying to teach us something about how to interpret the show. 
Is that does spurning sound reasonable to anybody or could you take that somewhere? As for the congressman's dilemma, I think, John, I think you might have said at one point, and it's something that I've taken into consideration is that I think that because I'm pretty sure that's the first scene we have with Gordon Cole, and it's like this list of just random stuff that's like, all right, everyone, get to work. And there is probably something like this stuff that it doesn't make any sense. It's probably that, like, maybe there's something to be said. And uh, that's why sometimes I try to, especially when I do episodes where I'm like, am I getting too pedantic? Am I reading too far into this? I do think of the congressman's dilemma every now and then. It's like, okay, maybe I need to, like, scale it back every now and then. Maybe I need that introspection. Yeah, I agree completely. I think the congressman's, <laughs> I wrote about it. I think the congressman's dilemma is almost like a meta-commentary from Lynch and Frost that said, you know, Here's a bunch of interesting clues. Good luck trying to put them together because you can't. <laughs> I, I will say, though, is that I think that when it comes to Lynch and Frost, like not even just with the return, but I'm thinking of like when they created the pilot initially, I believe it was David Lynch. He said to join dumb is that, hey, you know, the studio will never pick this up, but let's have fun with it. And Lynch put in a great deal of work for 90 minutes that I don't think, because he's never come across as the type of person that's ever phoned in anything for a second in his life. And there's a lot of stuff that he does in the return. Like, for example, the, the amount of screen time that Goran Cole gets, because Goran Cole, like, you know, you look at, like, what Lynch did behind the scenes, like, writing, directing, sound design. And he didn't really have to, like, he could have been, like, he would have easily been forgiven if, like, Goran Cole had, like, a cameo of sorts, but he really put himself in there. So that's kind of my counter-argument is that, yes, we have the congressman's dilemma where it's like, don't read too far into it. But then on the other end, you have Lynch where he made this 18-hour movie and he was there, like, you know, in the nitty-gritty from day, you know, from the from the first day of writing to the last day of post-production. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird he's a, balance. He's a big ham. David Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> like, or like the like the behind the scenes when it showed him creating the spout the spout for yeah the spout for uh, Philip Jeffries I guess the tea kettle is that he really gets on his hands and knees like he like he like just goes all in and um so yeah again like uh, I know I'm just kind of repeating myself but does it I guess the, I, I want to ask like does anyone else kind of think of this in terms of uh, if they think they're reading too far into it. And also what says about Lynch, about how far he goes to, you know, put his mark into his uh, films and art. Well, I can tell you, I went to see him probably the year, maybe like six months before the shutdown happened. Ringo Starr was on a book tour for his photo book. And they did a night at the Fonda Theater with David Lynch and Ringo Starr and... Um, that's amazing. Uh, Josh, you, you Josh, you may know it was who's the famous photographer that does all the the, the musicians. He's so famous. Uh, I can't think of his name. He 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 did David Lynch wrote the foreword to the book and you, Herb Ritz. You, is it Herb Ritz? No, it's not Herb Ritz. No, he's he's specifically he shot the baby James album cover and the very famous Crosby Stills and Nash. You'll know his name if you hear it. I can't I can't think of it. But anyway, he was the three of them were there. And so it was a it was a fantastic night. I mean, that part was great. But he had a um, he had a David Lynch was like he he had a cough or something. I don't know. And and they asked for um, cough drops or something. And so then everyone in the theater who had a cough drop in his or her possession like brought them up to the stage to him. So he had this big pile of cough drops. It was a, it was a, a funny moment. But at the end of the night, 
you could walk down to the stage and people were milling around and he was down on his hands and knees on the floor arranging all of these cough drops in a like weird pattern and then taking pictures of him with his phone I mean that's what he was doing so I think Colin you know you're hitting on something that's very real it's it's all art to him that's what I, I mean that is the art life right he sees everything through that really freaky lens you know making art out of cough drops I don't know I, I was I found it very uh intriguing yeah. that's a great story I really like that that's a good <laughs> one right <laughs> I have a picture you know my, I was there with my husband so he was trying to get a picture of me with Lynch on the on the floor if I can find it I'll I'll send it to you guys <laughs> That's awesome. And it, it, my my only comment on uh, Lynch not phoning anything in, I ninety nine point nine percent agree. But if you've ever seen his Barilla pasta ad with Gerard <laughs> Depardieu feeding pasta to some random woman <laughs> on a motor motorcycle, I think he he might have phoned that one in. But he had to get to Rome to like be at Fellini's deathbed. So I can't yeah, there you him. go. <laughs> the photographer is Henry Diltz. That's the photographer. If you look at his work, I mean, he's shot the most iconic album covers of, you know, 60s and 70s, I would say. But anyway, it was a fun night. I love the furniture that he makes, too, that, that shows up in the setting. And uh, I've been looking for, like, some sort of material or analysis or, like, I don't know, just article or on on the use of, on the furniture in the return. And uh, has anybody ever seen that? Uh, no, and I also want to do one on the cars. That's my, that's what I would like to see, an analysis of all the cars in the return. <laughs> so two things. There's, there's a, like a car IMDB, apparently, of like all cars in movies. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm sure they have some coverage of the Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. There is a website out there that I actually use as a reference frequently that lists every single car in the return. Oh, and okay. People, I never looked it up, but I'm going to here and you know what the car was that big ed drives you know and what car uh cooper's driving in the you know part 18 in both times and um what car is in the intersection that bobby <laughs> comes yeah out there's talking. i mean there's definitely cars are important for sure uh, there is uh you know there is a book um i've got it right here uh called the architecture of david lynch mm. Oh, um, I've seen I that. I need to read that one. I've had it recommended. Yeah, to I have it in my on so, my list. I think uh, it, it gets into a little bit about the furniture. I think I haven't read the whole thing, but the interesting thing about the architecture of David Lynch and David this gets back to the whole idea of curtains, which was one of the questions that Anthony had up there. Right. About. Lynch is fascinated with the proscenium. He's fascinated with stages. You can go all the way back to Eraserhead, there's a stage, and Elephant Man, there's a stage, and Blue Velvet, there's a stage, and uh, um, there's stages and curtains, and the idea of these spaces where performances are being, the Roadhouse is a great example, where performances are, are you know, being conducted. And, uh, and there's something about that that fascinates Lynch. Uh, it's sort of like it's a, it's almost like they're red rooms in a way. They're stages where things are produced and displayed for us to observe. And I think curtains is a big, big part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, run that's, silent. That's fascinating. 
I think the straight story, I, I just ran through it in my head. The straight story might be the only, maybe Dune, the only ones that don't have like Stages, a yeah. stage with curtains. Boy, hmm. oh, the straight story, I have to go through and think about that one. Yeah, I don't think they're... They're watching the lightning show. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think maybe there's a, a view through the window of... Um, Alvin collapsing or something, but that's yeah that's not curtains, yeah. No, no theater. <laughs> yeah. Um, what year is it? I guess I'll ask. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I, I wanted to ask a trivia question in relation sure. to this. I I thought about it. I think I have the answer. I might be missing something. Which three decades? are never featured on screen in Twin Peaks from the 40s to the 2010s? That's a good question. Um, There's only three that I can think of. Ooh, that's a great and one, question. One of them is very surprising when you think about it. Um, <laughs> I, oh, sorry, you, you go on. 2000s? The 2000s <laughs> is never featured as far as I can think of, but maybe I'm missing something. Oh. Surprisingly, I don't think the 90s. That's right. Yeah, I don't think the 90s is ever on screen in okay. Twin Peaks. And then the 70s, maybe. Yeah, they that's, refer to that's the other one. Yeah, because the 60s is in the little Wyndham Earl video. And then right. you have obviously the 50s and the 40s in the return. And then you have the 2010s and the 80s. So, that's a, all right. That's, that's, really that's my, that's my trivia, trivial pursuit question. <laughs> that's a good one relating to date. What year is it? Cool. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's let's funny that a, I ask myself that question all the time. Let's let's <laughs> do a little, we'll do a little rapid fire. So give like a five second answer. And then if anybody wants to riff on it. Um, and so let's start with Allison. What year? Oh. When, when, when he says, what year is this? Um, what year is this? I genuinely don't know. You mean like my, my question is what is the year that they're in? 89. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> alternate 89, like alternate yeah. 85 and back to, back to the future. Yeah, exactly. I genuinely don't know. Josh? The mind that asked that question has been released from time. There's no root. So that's the answer. Ooh. John? I, I second that. <laughs> John? There is no year. It's the end of time. It's the very <laughs> the end of the dark age. The Kali Yuga. Oh, yep. it's the Kali Yuga. Common. Um, I can expand much further if you want to, but I think for now it's five seconds. I'm sorry. 2014, but we can expand on it later on if we can. All right. I, I want to hear more on that, but my answer would be it is the year that Unrecorded Night comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody who would like to expand on um, their own or somebody else's answer? Colin, I guess, you want to start? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess actually me and Joel, we talked about it when we did the Sarah Palmer episode, where I remember I mentioned that the first time I watched Part 18, when uh, Richard and Carrie are walking up the steps, I remember thinking to myself that if, if Grace Zabriskie opens that door, that would be more shocking than anything else to me. Like, it never crossed my mind that Grace Zabriskie <laughs> would open the door. I thought that was like, there has to be something like, whether it's a red herring or something else. Um, mm -hmm. 
But yeah, no, I, I think that in the case of like, well, the reason why I say 2014 is that I think of it is that it is indeed, at least relatively speaking, 25 years past. But I think of like the way that the Tremont slash Chalfons factor into, into Twin Peaks, the Twin Peaks mythos. And I think of more so their role than the year. Because like, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but I, I, I feel like when Richard asked, what year is this? it never crossed my mind that that would ever be a thing that I would think of in that circumstance, because uh, there's just something about like the way that Tremont's and Chalfonts, where we see actually the quote unquote two Chalfonts in Fire Walk With Me, and the role that the Tremont's and Chalfonts play in Dot for Donna in season two. So I think of just more so like they invade certain spaces, and there's just something about how they uh like how like the, it's it, for me it's less of the year and more of the space that they're in and why they're in it to begin with hmm. what about you anthony what year is it <laughs> oh i just asked the questions around oh. <laughs> <laughs> um but if i said it's 2017 2018 would that do anything for you it does because the I think the return takes place in 2016. So it would mean it was the future. Mm. I guess actually this is one, because I noticed this with um, uh, definitely on the Twin Peaks wiki and also you see in the Mark Frost books. I, I think there, I always the reason why I said 2014 is that when Laura, because even the very beginning of the return says, I'll see you again in 25 years. And, uh, you know, give or take, because I think it takes place September, October for most of the parts in the return. But, yeah, I just never quite understood why it tacked on those extra couple of years, barring the fact that the return came out in 2017. Mm, yeah. yeah, it is odd, isn't it? Because it's like they shot those scenes, at least they shot the location scenes in 2015. It came out in 2017. But, like, people have done the math and, like, which day of the week is it when they have, like, a date on screen and blah, blah, blah. And it's like it only makes sense in 2016, which is kind of fascinating. Mm. Can I can I please ask Josh to just expand upon his answer a little bit? Um, I, I wanted I want to ask John as well, but he he might feel like he's discussed this in the past. But um, would you mind like repeating your answer and just riffing on that a bit? I mean, for the what year is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So th that idea of being unmoored from time uh, is a fascinating one. It's certainly something that happens in that scene. Uh, anyone who asks that question. Uh, there, there is no logical answer to it. If you're asking that question, you are in dire straits, or you've been released. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, in the dream, nobody has a concept of what time it is. So the fact that you ask that question means that you are now aware that you are unmoored, and that awareness, I think, is the the ultimate story of the return. It's, it's someone coming back to agency within the dream who forgot that they were dreaming, uh, and indeed forgetting that they were dreaming was the cause of manipulation. And that's how those dark forces seeped in. Uh, so for me, that in question was never an actual question about what, what year is it? It's more like, oh my gosh, I'm no longer caught in this illusion in the net of gems, if you will. When you say illusion, what, like, what do you mean? So for me, the, the reading of everything that happens in the return is essentially a dream within a dream within a dream that he forgets he's dreaming. So the 
Candy actually gave me the, the term that I use for that. It's the version layer. So when we begin in the red room, it's manipulated and corrupted. And when Laura is removed, for me, that is the same moment in part 17 where she's ripped out. So that's the same moment in part two and part 17 that's happening simultaneously. And by removing Laura Palmer from what's happening in the red room, it's essentially a support column that's pulled out of that delusion. Uh, and that's what allows Cooper to kind of fall into this sub layer of dream. And in fact, there is a uh, song, I forget which episode it's in, but it's called Sub, sub Dream is the name of the song. It's, it's in the credits. Mm. Um, and to me, that's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, I mean, I, that was hitting me over the head with it. But when Candy tells Anthony Sinclair that we are in the version layer, I kind of seized on that. And I'm like, all right, I'm stealing that. And I'm putting it on. This whole thing that happens from there is the version layer and it wraps all the way up. And then it's kind of a crawling out of that as he's hacking through these layers of the dream and he thinks he's saving the girl, but actually he's, he's saving himself. So if that never would have happened, and he did take Laura Palmer home to her home to her house in the in the world that Mr. C kind of manipulated. Sarah Palmer would have opened that door, and what would have happened? She would have eaten his face, and the golden seed would have been released, and Mr. C would have met her there at those coordinates because that's where they were leading. We saw that in part seventeen, and he would have seized that golden seed, and in my mind, woken up evil, and and that would have been the total corruption of Dale Cooper's soul. So for me, that. Uh, that idea is, is omnipresent throughout all of the return. That makes me have like four questions at the same time, but I'm trying to empty, keep my cup empty and allow your words to fill my cup so I could, you know, sip on that for a little while. And um, if anybody else wants to follow, I want to read, I had the first draft of your book and, and, the new book is out, correct? So thanks to John Thorne and my work with him, I had to go back and revise the goddamn book. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Is there there's a new there's a new version of it? Yeah, so I'm actually so, working on it right now. It's on Kindle. It's going to be uh, the the definitive version. Excellent. Uh, I don't ever want to touch this stuff again when I'm done with this. I yeah, swore yeah. I and then I so, during COVID and it changed it all. Because yeah i would have to sit you know your i mean your ideas are really really interesting and and um i i assume as profound as they sound on the surface you know because but i would have to sit with that and like read it and like chew on it and um like really think you'll get a free copy yeah, yeah. <laughs> josh yeah, that's cool me can I can I ask you that? And we can cut this out if it doesn't fit in or if it's too much to to, to discuss because this is a big topic. Um, I don't know if I'm you know. So personally speaking, I'm doing the Twin Peaks conversations. I wanted to have you on at some point. It hadn't happened yet, and now it's sort of my my uh, steam has sort of run out a little bit on that project. So I don't know if it's going to happen. But um, I I wanted to have you on at some point. One of the things I wanted to discuss was. I know you've said in your first edition of the book, you had like a theory that Laura was maybe like the dark force of the universe or something. And then I think you said at some point you kind of moved away from that a little. And I was curious about that because I remember when you came out with that theory, I kind of struggled with that a lot. I was like, I I, I don't see that or whatever. And, and so I was kind of curious if you want to discuss it. And again, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, what I guess, what has been your evolution on that 
on that particular question? Quite significantly. So a lot of that came from trying to jam the secret history of Twin Peaks into the return and figure that out. Because that's essentially revealed in the final dossier that essentially the child of Bob and, and Judy was this, you know, Beelzebub on Earth, which, you know, if Bob is inheriting Leland and Judy is inheriting Sarah Palmer and they had a baby, <laughs> yeah, that would be Laura Palmer. So that uh, was a terrible theory. It was awful. It didn't sit right with me. It didn't feel right emotionally. And eventually it forced me to reevaluate everything that I thought about it. So that first edition of that book was very intellectual. I was really trying to figure it out with these dates and all these things that we've been talking about. I wanted to get that so that it made sense on a timeline on paper. Uh, and it never did. It's a terrible way to try and approach the return. It will leave you vacant and uh, without meaning almost. So the second time when I went back through after working with John over that uh, two, those two seasons, I really started to look at this completely differently. Um, and the second edition is much more of a spiritual exercise. I mean, it, I uh, was joking with Scott Ryan. I'm like, the first edition of that book could have been taught in a sociology <laughs> class, but the second one could be taught in a church. I mean, I, I really... <laughs> This is my spiritual evolution with this art. It's got nothing to do with trying to impose my theories on other people. This is all about my experience and how I have grown as a person by staring into the mirror of this art, uh, which uh, how wonderful that we can all look into this thing and see something totally different, but come out the same, the same better people uh, than we were before we went in there. It just to me, that's, that's the only thing of value about Twin Peaks that really, really matters when we talk about it. That's yeah. That's that's totally fascinating. I, I, I'm curious. Like, are you gonna like? Do you have even though you now kind of rejected? Are you gonna have a record of the like the earlier thoughts and kind of like, hey, this is how I reached this point or something by going through this Great. process or. I have all those early drafts and editions. I think I was even interviewed, and in uh, I think on uh, Twenty Ten Wrapped, I that was where I kind of uh, launched <laughs> that theory. Uh, I mean, it is justified in text. If you want to jam Mark Frost's final dossier and say that <laughs> you know together, I think on that element, the really interesting thing about the final dossier is the dissolution of Tammy Preston as a character. Mm. So Tammy Preston you know, being this kind of investigative agency all throughout what I'll call the version layer. Uh, and then we get to wrap that up in the final dossier and she's losing herself. It's like pieces of herself are falling away. She loses the concept of what that is. And for me, I was like, okay, so Mark Frost books operate only within that version layer. It's an alternate version of what happens. Mm -hmm. It explains everything that's wrong about his books within the context of what was wrong within that version layer of, of the Dougie Jones uh, layer of, of what we see from a narrative perspective. Uh, to me, I think it's absolutely canon. His books are, they fit inside that realm, but they don't apply to what we've seen in seasons one and two, mm. <clears throat> pardon me, or, or even what we see in part 18. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I had one other question before, <laughs> before I bring everyone else back in, but um, I'm trying to think what it was. Basically, so like with, I guess with, um, oh, okay. No, actually, this is sort of a trivial question now that I think about it. What was, the, what was that process like with Scott Ryan, who is the biggest Laura Palmer fan in the world, to, to engage with your idea of Laura initially yeah. as the dark force? Uh, how, how did he... Yeah, uh, we don't talk about <laughs> we just we, we are we're not on the same planet when it comes to Twin Peaks. Uh, 
that's that's all I'll say about that. But what okay, I will fair say, enough. Because I remember you had a red room episode where it was sort of like interesting. It was like it was engaging. But oh like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> while, while it was airing, that was one thing. But after it was over, um, yeah, I don't find that a helpful exercise for, for my own thinking. <laughs> I, yeah. I love Scott. I value his ideas and his presence. But that's just <laughs> subject. I will say that he was my introduction to Twin Peaks, and so yeah. your brother-in-law, we should Peaks, say had... for the for the listeners who don't know. <laughs> yeah. Very, oh wait, close to he's them. married to your uh, sister. No, he's married to his, his sister. Wife, yeah, right. His wife is your is your sister, Je no, Jen. No, his his wife. Yes, so Jen's <laughs> sister is my wife. Jen's sister is your wife. Okay, because when we were there last week, um, my friend Diana and I went to Mary Reber's, and John and Jen were there. Scott, I mean Scott and Jen were there, and um, we had a fantastic. Day. Oh, that so, sounds yeah, so fun. <laughs> it was. It was like a magical, bizarro, crazy thing to be hanging out at the Palmer House. Yeah. Actually, the, so I, one thing. I, this is more so about the the Mary Reber's home because I'm one of the people where when I think of the fan, I get a, a, a I get a feeling when I see it, but I don't think it's as visceral as like other people. But I remember the first time I went to her home in 2021. I we we sat down like we talked in the foyer for a bit. Then we sat down, and talked in the living room, then the dining room. And this is like an hour and a half that we're doing this. I turn the corner, I see the fan, the exact angle when we see Sarah Paul in the pot. I literally grab it. She's like, "Holy shit!" Like <laughs> I just turned back around and like I think even for her that it's was something. like a reaction she did not expect from like most fans. <laughs> but yeah, I like there's something about when you see it and how untouched that like that whole hallway is it's just very unsettling to me yeah have you been there john oh yeah. Mary's house yeah i got to watch uh part 12 of the return in the house oh and, awesome uh if you if you remember anything about part 12 there's a scene where there's two things, two weird things happen. I actually wrote about them in the book, but uh, Hawk comes up the stairs and knocks on the door and I wanted to turn and look. <laughs> right. But this is, this is, you, this know, is if you, you know, if you did turn and, and walk toward the door, you don't know what would have happened. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> you would have entered another dimension. Another altered universe. Yes. <laughs> For the best. This is a true story. This really happened. We were watching the part 12. Uh, Brad Dukes was there, and uh, I don't know, it was a couple other people. I can't remember who all was there, but anyway, there was a noise in the kitchen. <laughs> there was a thing, a thing, it something fell, and <laughs> just Mary's uh, daughter moving around, trying to, trying to be quiet, not disturb us. But it was so weird. <laughs> it was so, so weird. <laughs> it wasn't during that scene. Yeah, I was just gonna ask. <laughs> It, was it during that scene when Hawk goes to visit? No, it was. It was. Uh, I think it was after the scene. So it was. You know that would have been that would have been really weird. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> so, so just super quickly, um, what what is in the show? What is the noise in the kitchen? And or um, what what's up with the looping boxing match? Is the whole mm. scene looping, or is it just the the, the thing on TV that's looping? <laughs> Do you have like a quick thought about that? Either of those? It's just time. I think time skipping. Like, uh, you know, there's a scene at the beginning of um, 
Inland Empire, but there's also a scene at the beginning of the return where the phonograph is playing and it's like the, there's a, um, I interpret it as the needle skipping in the groove. And so time isn't right. And uh, that's a sort of literal manifestation of a needle skipping in the groove is that is it happens again in her house when she smashes the picture as the glass reforms. It's the same thing. The time is not right in that house. That house is sort of a haunted house where time is is all um, timey wimey and loopy. <laughs> and, and timey wimey, yes. That why Cooper says, "What year is this?" I mean, I'm just thinking that now mm. because that's sort of outside of time. Even though I have a different theory about it, whatever. <laughs> I, I guess one of the ones, because uh, actually, John, I really like what you have to say, but I think one of the ones that I look at, I know I'm just going to state the super obvious, but I'm thinking of, like, people I know who lost their children at a, you know, when they were, like, far too young, and I'm just thinking about how literally time just stands still for them, because you look at, like, in part 17, before she goes to destroy the photo, you look at how washed out that homecoming photo is, and it's mm -hmm. one of those, like, moments where it's like, wow, 25 years really was, like, a while and uh and like you know it was like she's been stuck in this time like it's pretty much since laura's death like i, I don't get too personal but i had a cousin who died when she was like right before she was out of high school and uh my uncle her dad literally he had a he had a calendar that would just like be in his his home office and just stay on the day the day she died so that's the lens that i look at in terms of sarah palmer about why she's like so stagnant and like I think that kind of adds the idea that she's watching, of course, the violence she's seen on TV is like a whole conversation of itself. But there's like, it's uh, the, one of the factors of why it's like on a loop is that she just like stuck in this rut that she's like, kind of like can't and or won't get out of. Sure. That's great. Great interpretation. Yeah. And don't you think it's possible that the noise in the kitchen is the kid from the market who brought I did, her yeah i definitely wondered that who brought her groceries i mean it, it's like it's a it's a red herring but it it doesn't necessarily have to be something evil sure. right it could have been something that simple. although I, I heard interpretations at the time that it was like it was that kid but she had like trapped him and was like oh <laughs> <laughs> I, I just remember that in the uh, previous episode where he says, I should deliver her groceries. And he just has this look on his face that says, good Lord, I hope I don't have to be the one. <laughs> like, he's like, he just wanted to say something nice. He didn't want to actually do it. Yeah. There's a lesson there. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what What did I just say? <laughs> I love those actors, the, the younger the younger kid actors. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, John, um, you, you probably don't want to talk about it now because you have, but you, you, time is not a thing at the end of the show. Is, is, is yeah, that, and, and also the, to attach to that question, um, is, is there anything that you've uh, uh, used to think or believe or interpret um, that you don't like since the book came out? Like, have have you revised anything? Um, I have some new theories that just like are totally different uh, in a different way, but that's what Twin Peaks is. I mean, we can we can place the theory on it and it can be very satisfying. We can find another theory, too, that also is satisfying. And one of the things that's interesting, it's a quick tangent, and I won't go into it, is the idea when Charlie says, do you want me to end your story, too? Mm. And looking at Inland Empire 
the idea of does someone else have control over your story and can they write your story? Can they, you know, direct you? And do you give yourself up perhaps to someone else like Leland did to Bob or whatever? That I haven't thought that through. It's just an interesting idea, the idea of storytelling and who is the storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I do that, but I'm thinking about it. Oh, I Getting- like it. Getting back to the year thing, I mean, you know, it's interesting that Cooper would ask that question. It's kind of a silly question. Um, You know, my theory in my book is that they're at the end of time and Cooper doesn't know how to express when he is. He's trying to find the right words. Um, But also, it still speaks to the character of Cooper a little bit stuck because, you know, what is a year? I mean, what is a year? We would all define a year as like, well, okay, it's, you know, defined by the the, the earth revolving around the sun and coming back to the same place in that revolution. But that's artificial mm-hmm. it, in a cosmological sense. If we didn't live on the planet we live in and, you know, we measure time that way, a year is not, it means nothing. Mm-hmm. And so um, when Cooper says, what year is it? He's trying to apply some sort of artificial construct over an impossibility. I, I think he's at a loss for defining what has happened to him. And he, he, he struggles. And it's, in many ways, it's a silly question. What year is it? But he's, but that's the thing. He's trying to make logic out of it, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. yeah I, think- I mean, I love, I love what you just said. So, I mean, I, I thought of, I, uh, throughout this conversation, I've been asking myself, like, why is why was that the question? But obviously, he was trying to figure something out that was logical, but it's not logical. At, none of it's logical. Right. And here doesn't mean anything to if there are cosmological beings or if there are red room black lodge beings, do they measure time like we do? Right. What is a year to them? Yeah. And, and also, too, and well, and because I guess when he pulls when he when he and Laura are out and they're walking through the forest, I mean, she's who she was when she was 17 or whatever, 16, right? I mean, her character is supposed to be the age she was when she was murdered. Right. So, so, um, but Cooper is, they didn't make him his younger self. They, right. I mean, it, it's, it's very confusifying. <laughs> right, right. Actually, and I know that this will actually uh, kind of add more cranes to everyone who said that there's not quite a year applied to Part 18. But when I think of, uh, like, once they, because Cooper, he says to uh, uh, Diane that, you know, once we cross, we might not be able to go back. And one of the things that stood out to me is that they show that Odessa has a population of close to 100,000 people. But the whole time in Odessa, it just feels like it's just almost completely dead. Like, there's no activity it feels like it's a much smaller town than Twin Peaks was in 1989. Like, you know, when they, when she, when uh, Richard goes to eat at Judy's, there's all these tables that are just kind of put up and just like, it feels like no one's really been coming through for some time. Uh, I guess, you know, because since we're on the topic, uh, more or less, was that ever something that crossed anyone's minds in terms of why Odessa felt so dead and why Part 18, you know, in general felt that way? Because it is a very small cast that is in like this whole hour. Yeah. I think there's eight people in it in the whole mm-hmm. cast that episode. Um, I mean, if you group the cowboys together, it's like one, whatever. Right. I, I, I did have the thought at times that maybe uh part 18 takes place in 2020 because everything is like shut down 
<laughs> you know, uh, like right. the diner's lights are off and everything like that. It's like if 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 uh, Alice Tremont had opened the door with a mask on, we would have been all set. Yeah, well, you know, Joel, I mean, there are some <laughs> weird coincidences. You know, there's the typewriter in The Secret History as a Corona. Mm, and yeah, and right. also, too, you know, Roswell was actually the, the first sighting was actually in Corona. It wasn't specifically oh, right. There, it was it was a it was in the I can't remember how the story goes, but I mean, Corona is a word that mm. very eerily gets mentioned before COVID actually even became a thing. Mark, yeah, Frost, that is interesting. <laughs> telepathic. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to uh, ask, um, um, as opposed to the meaning of uh, the meaning of what year is this or the answer to what year is this? Um, what is the function of of that line? Because, um, well, I have a, a thought that is not accurate, I'm sure, but I, it's interesting to me. And that is that, um, like, Diane, we see multiple times the Diane Tulpa unable to counter the programming even if she wants to. So if, if there's some sort of, like, Tulpa-esque programming, she's unable unable to hold it off long enough. In fact, she even goes and, and she tries to shoot people. Um, and you can see her struggling or seeming to struggle against it. Um, so it seems like that's something that can't be done, like can't be accomplished. And um, I have this like little fun idea that Carrie is sort of in the same situation, um, but she's the only one who's able to sort of overcome or counter the programming. And it happens at that moment when he says, like, uh, what year is this? And you just, like, you it's not, a, like, a glitchy thing with her, but something is happening, and she's able to actually, like, break through from, a, like, sort of programmed type thing to something authentic or whatnot. But so I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's not the deal. But, but, but my back to my question is, um, like, what's the function of that line? Or what role does that line serve? Or what does it do, in your opinions? Um, I, I think that it 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 is a pr at least a good segue to when Sarah screams Laura. It like certainly mm -hmm. takes me back to 1989 with the pilot. So I think that it at the very least makes a good transition to hearing her say Laura and then Carrie Page screaming. Um, again, like it, it, talking about part 18 and trying to like really fully divulge, I'm I'm still not the best at. But that's at least like my I, I guess cursory glance take on it. So it's it's sort of like a moves it moves the plot along. Is that what you said? At the very least, yes. Um, in terms of, I, I feel like if like theoretically, if that wasn't there, and then we heard Sarah scream Laura, it would probably be less impactful. Because uh, for me, like when I think of like the ending of Part Eighteen, definitely everything with Carrie's scream is like the part that just like resonates with me, like you know, like through and through. Uh, but yeah, again, this is why for me, it's like when I hear the like, what year is this? Just like, you know, in terms of like why Richard slash Cooper would say it, I've never felt like there's ever something I felt like, yes, this is why you would say it. I've never felt like 100% comfortable to like why I think he would feel that way. But it is kind of interesting that the answer to the question is Sarah. Mm. He asks the question and then you hear her voice, right? I mean, just as a, a, a on its face, you know, um, it's an ignition of some kind. Yeah, ignition seems like a really good word. Um, trigger. I, I don't know. I, I see it just as a, just as um, 
evidence of Cooper's failure. It could have been any question. What color is it? <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it, it, some questions probably more you know significant than others. Uh, but he's yes. just lost. Just, he just he thought he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He felt so confident. I need to take you home. He never explains to her why. Right. I need <laughs> home. Do it. And you recognize anything? And we're going to go up. And he goes up the stairs and. And, you know, he's looking suddenly for Sarah Palmer and she's not there and he's starting to get confused. And and then he loses it. He just he does not understand anymore what he was supposed to do. And so he expresses that by saying, what year is it? It, it, You know, who am I would have been a real blatant, obvious question or why am I here? Uh, Lynch finds a more clever way maybe of expressing Cooper's complete confusion with the question what, what year totally. yes and and it and it and it will forever for the rest of our lives and generations to come be having us ask why why right. <laughs> yeah do you um do you John see the see that like how I do that Laura does re- does react to Cooper saying that in the way that he says it, she does sort of like look like well, hesitate and then have this whole sort of progression about it in the book was that she sees she's been following him. She's sort of been trusting him, oh, you know, okay. says you're my ticket out of Dodge. She doesn't say it exactly that way, but she uh, she realizes when he collapses, essentially, mm. that, she, um, that she it's there's no one left but her. And so it's only a few seconds, really, for this characterization to come to fruition. Uh, but I think it's then obviously, of course, there's Sarah yelling the name, which is more of a trigger than anything else, perhaps. But I think she, for me, again, as as uh, you know, Josh would say, this is how I interpret it, how it works for me. Yeah. Uh, that's when Laura really emerges out of Carrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, been slowly emerging on the car ride when she's asking the question you know reminiscing about i tried to keep a clean house i tried totally. to i love that scene so much yeah, laura's starting to emerge but she comes out then uh and and i would again the very specific interpretation that that's where she fulfills her reason for being and that is to scream but but i i guess i would agree with you that the the question uh is evidence to Laura that she she can no longer rely on Cooper. He is gone. <laughs> so that's how I would look at it. Mm-hmm. I, I think another one that's worth mentioning, just because we're talking about the relation to Carrie screaming to when she hears Sarah's uh, screaming Laura, is that when Richard goes to uh, Carrie's house in Odessa, he asks, like, are you Laura Palmer? There's no response. Is your father Leland Palmer? still no response but when she says sarah palmer there's this sudden like like almost like micro expression and just like the way that she like shudders like that she knows that there's something wrong right exactly that's not a question he actually tells her he says your mother is right yes she's okay so he's programming her Uh Mm uh-huh i I have a bit of a different very good point interesting final scene when when he finally says what year is this and she you know blows up and we hear sarah palmer calling out to her dead daughter from the twin peaks pilot that's time being made right again 
that's his understanding of reality being made right again. Like the idea that he could have changed time was completely absurd on its face. So that's time resetting itself. Um, and, and or else why would we hear that particular call out of Sarah Palmer calling out for a dead daughter? We all know that that's what happened in Twin Peaks, the pilot. And so when that, which is the actual last spoken line of dialogue in the return, um, that question, what year is it? Who, who is he asking that to? In my mind, he's offering that back up to the viewer. The only meta-narrative, you know, force that's orchestrating meaning out of all of this stuff, it's you and I. We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're the ones that he's asking that question, and damn if we have a good answer for it. Um, the, the only thing we have to say is, like, none of that happened, <laughs> and now we're in this Sopranos fade to black where there is no meaning. It's funny. Hey, Mike, when, <laughs> yeah. When you put it that way, too, it's funny that like both season two, or I guess I should just in general, the original series and season three end with these unanswered questions. And I, I guess if we ever get an unrecorded night with Steria follow up, I almost have to think it won't address the question of uh, what year is this? Because season three doesn't really address the question of how's Annie. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do do uh do any of you have nagging questions? That... I have I have one. I have a nagging question. I watched when I was there last week. I watched episode fourteen, which I've seen many times. So it's the scene where Ed comes to the diner and tells Norma that he's free. And when I watched it this time, and again, this is just conjecture, but I wondered as soon as I saw it, did Norma know what she was going to say? Or did she change her plans on the spot when Ed said to her, I'm free and I can be with you now? Did she just decide to tell the other guy, you know what? I'm out. Do you think that's possible or did she know? No, I, I definitely have thought about that. And I think there's a really good argument that could be made that when he said that to her, she shifted her, her plans. She was like, this is this is what's going to happen now. And I never thought of that before. I don't know. I saw it differently this time. Yeah, yeah no, awesome. I, that 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 thought definitely occurred to me too. It's like why, like, because she has this kind of stunned reaction on her face, right. and it's like I I, 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 I got to talk to this guy now, and it's like, yeah, I love how he doesn't answer that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Good. And I'm I, glad. I think she says like I could have many, but I only want one talking about the diner and then right she, then he's like i thought you had no family and she's like no right be with my family so uh, that doesn't answer your question but that that's just that was kind of cool yeah i don't it's know why that I, hit me that way it's I, I like the other time. guy too i, I like the uh the restaurateur guy i, I, don't know. I didn't like him <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> me either me either go back to uh, 80s television <laughs> wait he was what's, northern exposure right what's not the, what's <laughs> not oh, right he was he was also on eight is enough Right, wasn't interesting. He? Yeah. I don't know. I, I just know this guy though because I, I, I do observe that <laughs> Michael Lookenland or something. I, I don't yeah. understand it. Almost nobody likes him, and all he's doing is, uh, in my opinion, all he's doing is doing his job. Yeah, well. he's he's being the man. I mean, literally, Much and like you know, and the corporate the corporate man. You know, he's destroying that, the small business. I think that's the frost, uh, a, a, a distinct frost. For sure. And the Frost commenting on the idea. 100%. Of, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that Definitely. We, 
eyes out and you take this, you're going to dilute it and you're going to make it less than what it, it is. And it's pure as, as it, Norma's, you know, the double R by expanding. And then, of course, they comment on that. You know, she sources her own, all her own stuff. Right. They're, they're getting <laughs> inferior ingredients for the pies or totally. whatever. So that's Frost, and that ties right into Dr. Amp. So Dr. Amp, totally. So uh, I think Frost is very pleased to get that, to that little yeah. plot. I think they, they could I have, have less of a problem with that stuff, but yeah. Well, I, I think they could have left him like a little more ambiguous, but mm. the fact that they add that line where he's like, who is that guy? When Ed talks to him, it's right. like, okay, they, don't, they want you to dislike him. Yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. Yeah, exactly. They want you to be annoyed with him. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know this is like a little bit of an earlier scene with uh, Walter and Norma, but uh, uh, it's the scene when he's talking about like the cherries, about like how like the, the original double R is the only one that's not turn a profit. And uh, when she's talking about like how it's like all organic, it's all local. It was actually one of the scenes that reaffirmed the idea that food is like a very central part of the return because there's something about like the the uh, environment that Norma facilitates the double R. And then meanwhile, you have Chantal and Hutch, where they eat nothing but trash. And then uh, you have uh, Chad, who's not eating just one but two TV dinners when uh, when Frank Truman has to boot him out. I was like, there's definitely something about food. I, I Personally, I think it's more of a frost thing, but also I think there's a at least a tangential sickness, like I was mentioning earlier, uh, that about uh, about what Lynch gravitates to. But so yeah, I don't know. Food just some that like it comes up a lot more every time I watch the return now. Yeah. yeah. But it, food is food has a big political bend to it. And I would agree that frost, I mean, I, my theory about the corn is totally frost. You know, corn subsidies. And I don't know. I did a I did a little bit of a of a of a, a nerdy deep dive on that one. But um it's actually yeah. funny because uh, when I went to go visit Emily Marinelli a, a month or so ago, and we were talking about like when I did my my icon for cream corn in the universe i we were talking about i was like yeah it's very telling that with prices going up for food these days i can still get a can like that for like 50 cents and just dump it in and then like and th like that's what it is with all corn products is that it's like it's like the it's like one of the few things that happens just like maintain its price because it's so cheap and just like so there's so much you can do that's just like really not good in general well and yeah and corn syrup in general it's ruined it's made america super duper fat and unhealthy you know i mean it's carmen bosia <laughs> yeah, yeah. and also too you know the 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 you know i i'm sure i'm not original on this thinking but about the cheetos you know that Chantel eats all the cheetos yeah. and it's corn it's cornmeal mm. you know <laughs> it's if, quick if, uh, quick carmen bosia <laughs> if it wasn't 11 or whatever that's like the crack yeah, form they, of Garmin Bose. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's if awesome. it wasn't so dark out, I would be seeing a field of corn right out the window. So, yes. Yeah, yes. Uh, yes. So it's it's an interesting topic around here. And I always did wonder, um, like, why that food versus a different food? But Colin, did you well, just say you made your own icon? You, you yeah. Know? Oh, no. All that was uh, DIY. It's from, like, my very early days uh, when I did Instagram. But I did get a picture of just, like, all the materials I had uh, before I made it. Uh, yeah, it was it was a weird. It was actually this. Did you make where, the red the red room floor? Or? Yeah, you know, I I painted oh, that. Then oh, I nice. bought these like little <laughs> curtains. Uh, it was all the stuff at Hobby Lobby. It was actually like this is my usually my Twin Peaks shelf. Like I said, I'm just I'm going to be painting soon, so I just moved yeah. stuff. But I had it dangled off the curtains. I had actually my Twin Peaks books holding it up. 
And I must have, I'm, if I had my, I, I think my window is open. So someone must have thought my Friday night was really weird because of me with my iPhone, just like trying to like get the right angle for like with this bot, like cream corn, like red drapes. I was like, I, I remember at some point I, I took like 50 photos. I'm like, my neighbors must think I'm absolutely insane. <laughs> so unlike, unlike the other company here, um, you're a bit eccentric, I, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was wondering, like, why does, would it be different if it wasn't an arm, you know, Mike's arm, the arm? Would it be different if it wasn't creamed corn, if it was something else? Or well, the cream, the, the, cr just arbitrary? the creamed corn, I know, um, David Lynch was like in the, the commissary at whatever at on on the sound stage and they were serving creamed corn that day when he was shooting yeah, episode nine and he just like stared at it and then sure <laughs> enough it was in the scene with his son on set dressed as him and like it wasn't in the script or anything so like that's that yeah that, I, I think everything i kind of feel this way with lynch in general and i think maholland drive bears this out because he shot all this stuff for the TV pilot that had no resolution. And then he shot the last half hour where it like is given its significance, but like, he just kind of is attached to like an mm. image or an idea and he goes with it. And later on, he figures out what it means. And he's like brilliant at figuring out what it means. If he wants to, you know, again, with Inland Empire, I think, I think he kind of, I almost feel like Inland Empire was re was like a response to how clearly everyone saw Mulholland Drive, thanks in part to his like clues or whatever. And he was like, okay, never again. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny because um, I was actually talking about like even like what was it, at this point five months ago when I helped Rebecca Del Rio with a Mulholland Drive event. I, I, I actually had this like reverse feeling of how I felt about Mulholland Drive because for the longest time, like, I mean, for years, I felt like what was happening in the beginning was the reality. And then the uh, Silencio was effectively the, this universe version, if you will, of uh, between two worlds. And then they step into a dream. And I mm. think because I realized I had to reevaluate it, I was like, oh, wait. That's like, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, uh, I think that for me, if like, if, if I had to pick one scene, it's really just when, um, when Diane, when she goes to the party, and it just everything just feels so confined. It's very anxiety inducing. I think there's something about seeing the cowboy out of the corner of her eye, where there's all these things where to me that feels so much more dreamlike than everything leading up mm. to the Silencio scene. Or even just like the way where uh, the camera zooms into the doorway to Silencio, where I was like, oh, I feel like I'm really stepping into a dream now. So, like I said, that's a topic for another time. But yeah, it's like for after years of feeling very firm about it. I have to be like, oh well, Naomi Watts is very is too golly G in this like first like two thirds. I need to really come to terms with that. Or then there's a lot of other small things where I'm like, okay, I got to come to terms with that. Oh, two. Well, uh, somebody I don't know if it was Anthony did say this was going to be a Maholland Drive podcast, so appropriate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, two two things. One is um, that uh, yeah, I, it, that that's fascinating to me because I had it presented to me like before i saw maholland drive which was only the second lynch film i ever saw it was like kind of given to me of like oh well the thing about maholland drive is that the last part is a dream so like i had that going in like i never really got to see it any other way um so so it is interesting to hear people when they have a different perspective on it because like 
I've only ever had that framework for it. And then like, also uh, I noticed you have a Wisteria shirt. <laughs> I oh love yes. That. The, uh, I guess I'll just say <laughs> it's the Wisteria Lodge shirt. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Yep. The, music, the band. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, that's, uh, that's the base. Cause um, no, I guess, no, I, I just bought the shirt. I don't think there's really much of a story behind that. No, that's funny. It just kind of poked into frame and I was like, Oh, whoa. <laughs> Hopefully. I'm going to, John, quick, I'm sorry, John. Let me just interrupt you a second. Yeah. Um, because I, I just got a little text, a little group chat text, and yeah. I think Josh has to uh, go in a second. So I, I just wanted. To, yeah, I need to jet too. I imagine most time. people yeah. are feeling this way. It's late on your side for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say to Josh, and I'm sorry to interrupt everybody. Um, really, really, really appreciate. You know, you, oh, you come for the invite. Nice to see you face to face. You're all awesome. This is time well spent. Oh, yeah, this was fun. This was yeah. great. And oh, it was really good to see everyone again because, um, actually, I, Joel, uh, sadly, I haven't actually seen you in person yet. But yeah, it's hard to believe that everyone here I've been able to see this year in some capacity. So, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so it's really good to see everyone like familiar faces again. And, and I we should all stay next year if we can. That would yes, be definitely. I made three cups of coffee during this, um, <laughs> so if anybody wants, so you won't to, be going you know, anytime. Yeah, soon. I, I'm I'm good for, you know, I'm good for as long. But Josh, Josh I know I know you had to go. Is there? Any, I don't know. Did you want to have any parting words, or is that dumb? <laughs> so, I, I guess my uh, my hanging question. You asked if there are any uh, nagging questions, and uh, it, it's a throwaway line. It's a throwaway scene in part one when we first meet Beverly and, and see Ben Horn for the first time. We learn about this lady who has a skunk in her room, and she asks Ben Horn a question: "How did this cunt get a room?" And he said he does a double take. Huh? John says no. I swear she says this, and he said, and then she says again, the skunk get in her room. So, oh, that's so funny. I never. Wow, I yeah, never I never picked up that. on that. There's a funny double take in there, and I'm convinced that that's what she says. That's the portal. That's so funny. I can't wait to watch that. <laughs> it's a great line. I, I put it in headphones. I listened to it several times, and I'm absolutely convinced. That that's what she says the first time. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. So what, what was that? What was it? Why? Why? You're going to make him repeat it? I don't know. I've heard that before, but, but, but why was that there? Is, or is that your hanging question? That's my hanging question. Did she really say it, or is that just? Uh, I'm gonna have, have to, to go back we'll and listen. To, yeah, we'll have yeah. to have a vote on that for sure. Very important. That as well, because the double take is actually super funny. If that's because Ben Horn goes, "What? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What?" I have a a friend of mine has shared with me like really high quality audio only versions. I'll put him on it. And, yeah, put them on the mission. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes I just listen to the episodes instead of watching it, and it's it, oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, it really is amazing. Any Lynch film, honestly, I, I do have that. I do have that scene. So I'm gonna sound and music would be like uh, I, I. In fact, you give me an idea. I think I'm gonna burn the uh, soundtracks and listen to them sometime when I'm sick of podcasts. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Great. 
All right, friends, I'm going to jet. I appreciate you all. It's been wonderful. Yeah, Josh, right. it was great hey, was yeah, to talk to you. Love it. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye, Josh. Thanks, man. All right. Actually, I put some of the comments as well is that I have a half hour to get stuff like uh, uh, stuff like uh, for shaving Listerine. So I'm going to judge. I have like a quasi filter on Zoom, but I look like it's like this disgusting name. Five o'clock, just like this six o'clock, like just this disgusting thing going on. I was like, I got to get this done before I go to work tomorrow. Uh, so no, I just want to say, I mean, I guess I said already, but it was really great seeing everyone again. Um, yeah, you hoping, too, Colin. Uh, yeah, hoping to see you all uh, in some way or another next year. Definitely for in Twin Peaks for everyone who's going. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Definitely. Oh yeah, no, I, I should probably get there before it closes, but I just want to say, um, I hope you all have a great night. It was really great uh, catching up with all this. Yeah, take care. Same. All right, take care, Roland. Bye, Colin. Thank you, man. All right, I feel like we should do, you know, so long, farewell. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bid you adieu as well. I'm going to have some dinner. Um, I, I have officially finished work, but <laughs> this was such a treat. Thank you, Anthony, for including me. I am honored. Yeah, well, the, the pleasure, I, could, I know I could speak on all of our behalf. The pleasure was ours. It was really a joy. I, I feel like, I mean, we could, it, you could, it's endless and I would love to do it again. So I hope everybody is on board to do it. I'm just really grateful. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully you can make it to Twin Peaks Day next year. Yeah. I, I'm going to try to do this again sometime. I, yeah. I had to buy, like, I had to, I had to re-up my uh, Zoom subscription. So now I need to justify that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can do it. Well, we're here. We're here for it, for sure. So, um, John and Joel, a pleasure. Such a joy. Yeah, Thank great you so fun. Much. Yeah, really. All right, you guys, have a good rest of your evening. You too. You too. Yeah. Thanks Bye. again. All right. I think I might be the next one out. But I... <laughs> do you want to sneak? Do you want to sneak in a Mulholland Drive comment first? Oh my. God, you started talking about Mulholland Drive. I, I, <laughs> Two hours later, Joel, Joel and I, Joel and I did a. a we did. Interview. It hasn't come out yet. It's still. Uh, it's still in the vault. <laughs> when you when you talked to me, Joel, I was right at the beginning. Uh, yeah, getting into it. I I had I have been working on that since we talked. I I don't think a day. Has Is it a book a or? Brief trip I took to Alaska. I've been. Mm. I have been immersed in Mulholland Drive. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. <laughs> and, I mean, today I spent probably hours writing about it. Nice. I, um, I've got to stop from talking about it, but it's just, I mean, the stuff is, here. So here's the thing. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, and we may have, we may have talked about this, Joel, but think about this as sort of a mental exercise. What if, <laughs> I wish I brought this up earlier and everyone could contribute but what if twin peaks had been had been passed by abc what if abc said we don't want to make twin peaks and we're not going to air the pilot and then someone came along the lynch and said we wanted you to turn it into a feature film the pilot which is exactly all in drive yeah what would that have been in some ways i think it would have been a 30 minute version of the return <laughs> So, so that it, you know, it's all recontextualized, which is what Mulholland Drive was, you know, it was recontextualized as a dream. I think something similar would have happened that it would have been, there would have been some other reality and Cooper would have been the one who had dreamt this visit to this little town and all the little things that happened in there 
would have reflected something. Maybe I don't know. Well, maybe I, I, I feel like the, so. the like ideal, almost like platonic version of that would be. And I've said this before, but it's like I think I said this in our conversation, maybe. But um, the it would have almost been the Twin Peaks pilot attached to like the Laura part of Fire Walk with me, maybe like boiled down a little bit. But you know, like that would have been the key to unlock the first part, in the same way that the last part of Mulholland Drive unlocks the first part, like yeah. that. That and it almost feels like, in a way, he was able to conceptualize Mulholland Drive because it lived through that three-year experience of like pilot TV series Firewalk with Me and like coming back and like unrooting like pulling up like what had been at the root of it all along, but hadn't been visualized yet, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm writing about that now. And the, you know, it's fascinating because Lynch had filmed the closed ending for Mahone right. Drive. He, Which he did. Yeah. And we mentioned this in our conversation. The Silencios club is like, right. that was the closed ending for Mulholland drive. Like he shot yeah. it in 99. Right. Like before he got the funding from the French, got it during the making of the pilot, and yeah, I have yeah, from a very reliable source about a scene that does not, it was never included in any mm. version, where Rita, where the detectives go to the morgue and Rita mm. is dead. Really? Yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. No, and so I think because there's a morgue scene that's in the deleted scenes, right, on the Criterion disc or something. No about the detectives discussing the uh the... it's not a more okay no but anyway my guess is that the original closed Mulholland drive was supposed to be rita's fantasy that rita's died mm. and she had like a incident at owl creek bridge kind of mm. you know i'm losing battery so i gotta go but um anyway <laughs> It's fascinating. It's just so fascinating because he didn't do he didn't do he didn't use it. He could have technically he could have said, "All right, it's done. It's already done. I've got a film." Yeah. But but and it's the same reason he went back. I think to make Firewalk with Me is because there wasn't enough of a driving mind. No, there wasn't enough of an inhabiting mind underneath the story of Mahone, mm -hmm. and he wanted to create a mind that would have envisioned those two hours and so he comes up with this mm. diane owen character and in some ways he did that with fire walk with me he yeah who personified he wanted to make laura more of a subject less of an object he wanted to make her more real than she was as this body on in twin peaks anyway they're there i i knew i was going to do this i'm sorry <laughs> There it so is. Wait, is your is your foreground is that like a log, like the log lady's log that she's holding? The wooden. Wait, John has been asked this before. <laughs> okay. What? In front of your in front of your shirt, is that a log there? Oh, in my oh, oh this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a table. Oh, it's an actual thing. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was like a fake foreground. <laughs> oh, a That's my log. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, someday, hopefully, in the near Something future. Something else I wanted to ask about. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just. Yeah. Kidding. I'll enjoy it. Yeah. So wait, the two of you recorded something? Yeah, but it hasn't been. It was. It's gonna be my last Twin Peaks conversations episode, and I had a whole thing about I was gonna finish 
all my projects by late October is not going to happen remotely for the Twin Peaks stuff. Mm -hmm. So like I'll maybe wrap up my film and TV commentary because I have a few random stray things that I want to do with that. But like all the, the, the Twin Peaks characters, the Lost in Twin Peaks that I'm like re-editing for my Patreon and the Journey to Twin Peaks would haven't even started the last part of those videos mm -hmm. yet. That's all going to have to be in the future. It just it, there's no way. I mean, it's now two months left of, you know, so. Yeah, we've, we've talked about you. <laughs> That's going to have to be the future. So uh, when, it is what it is. The, uh, but yeah, that so that conversation, I was thinking, there's two conversations I wanted to have. I mean, there's a bunch. I mentioned tonight with Josh. It was like, I kind of wanted to have him as a guest at some point. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, most of that's probably not going to happen. But the, the two that I would like to do, um, I'd like to talk to Jeremiah, the talk, take the ring guy, because I haven't watched any other video essays on Twin Peaks. I don't want to like kind of tamper with my own kind of approach to Twin Peaks video essays. So I've been waiting to watch them till after I finish my own. Like I said, I haven't even started the last part of them. So I think he would be somebody I'd like to talk to. And then with John, I, I want to have like a, a, a kind of a composite podcast where we recorded something back in, I think, May. I'm mm -hmm. talking about Twin Peaks. We ended up talking about Mulholland Drive a lot. And I said, I'm going to combine this with a conversation we'll have after I finish these videos, which again has, in my idealized view, is like a few months away and is God knows how long far away now. But whenever that happens, we'll do a follow-up, I think. And and, and I'll, th those will be like the last two episodes as I, as I wrap up my Twin Peaks work someday. <laughs> cool. Good Distant deal. future. Well, well my, my battery's almost out, yep. so I'm I'm gonna have to very soon. <laughs> yeah, hope so, you guys enjoyed. Yeah, this yeah, was fun. Lots of fun, and let's do it again sometime soon. You know, I'm you down. Know? Yeah, yeah. I'm down. Good deal. Good time. It was an experiment for me, and I I had a really good time, and and I always love things even more when I'm watching it. You know. Yeah, it was very freeform. I feel like you had like a lot of, we don't, probably only asked like a quarter of your questions from oh, like God. that list. Yeah, that list you popped up at one point, but it was like we kind of went off yeah. on these little tangents. So it was yeah. fun. That, yeah, that was, usually. Yeah, that's, that's how it goes. Thanks, man. All right. Got to go, Joel, Anthony. All right. Bye bye. See you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll close it out here, but um, anything you wanted to say at the, at the <laughs> end of your own episode? <laughs> um, I was already thinking I might just do a little thank you message to all of you when it's just me and the camera, but I guess I could do that now. Either way, I can go if you <laughs> yeah. want. No, no, no. I, I, no, I just, I would like to take just a minute to thank everybody because um, it was, well, I, I, uh, to quote you in the past, I have had the my dinner with Andre experience where um, on the one side, you're sort of ecstatic and almost religious about the experiences. And um, and then you fall into a like sort of more like the uh, the Wallace Shawn character, mm, where you're yeah. like, you know, a little more laid back and content and pleased. And, and that's how I am with most of my life. But I was heading there with the Twin Peaks uh, element of my life as well. And and maybe even more than relaxed, maybe even just sort of like growing distant for various reasons. And I was just really happy to like reach out to a group of people and especially 
the particular group that I reached out to. And it was, uh, I mean, it was like reinvigorating as far as mm. Twin Peaks emotional stuff, but, but also just really nice on a personal note, you know, to see everybody. I'm glad we could do this. And it, I mean, I would be down for doing this again with, with, you know, if people were up for it. Yeah. That's funny. You used almost the exact words I was thinking of, which is like, I was going to say rejuvenating because, um, mm. It gets, I, I like for so long, and we've discussed this. I have yeah. these like long lists of like, I'm doing this thing and that thing, and then I'm <laughs> reaching this project and blah, blah, blah. And I want to finish it all before, you know, this birthday or whatever. Like, I have these whole like plans and itineraries, and they always take longer than you think. And it gets to be a bit of a slog at times. And I still enjoy doing the work at that moment, but like all the moments in between where I'm like, I yeah. got to squeeze in this tonight. I got to stay up a little later and get to, you know, less sleep before work. Cause I got to do this and that it like gets to be a little wearisome and it's like talking to other people and getting that kind of spark is, is always fun and kind of invigorating. Yeah, it is. And, and like you were saying, as far as uh, like fluctuating between keeping it loose and keeping it focused, um, that's almost inevitable. You know, because uh, on the one hand, it's it is it's a little bit of like a social gathering and just really nice on the personal note to to get together. And then on the other hand, there are like these certain questions that you want to kind of hit, even if they're yeah. not absolvable questions. But, <laughs> but uh, for me, like I guess one of the messages that I'll walk away with is that uh, this <laughs> this takes a long time. Like it, <laughs> if I wanted to go through all the questions that I had or even just to talk about all the topics that I'd like to talk to you, to you guys about, you know, that I, I can't be done in a couple hours. I thought it could. Well, well it there like is, there's a couple approaches. There's mm -hmm. like, because we did the one and I think it's fun, yeah. but you'd almost have to like delineate, like we're going to do this for a half hour or an hour or whatever. It's like yeah. the rapid fire, like you have a minute to answer or something. Yeah. Um, but everybody has to be on board with that. It's, it's, it's different, I guess, when it's two people versus like seven or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, but like that's Beautiful. another, yeah, that's a fun approach too, but um yeah no i i uh <clears throat> excuse me yeah <laughs> um so i'll give i will give you i'll give you the clothes if you want not the, um not the clothes off my back but <laughs> yeah well, would needed them but the, the closing Clo clothes for me i guess just uh anybody who's listening you can check out my work lostinthemovies.com um I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Lately, I've just been previewing tons of stuff. A lot of it I haven't put out yet. A lot of movie coverage, talking about um, Sight and Sound poll from 2022, where they ranked the best movies of all time. And I, I've kind of been covering the ones that I hadn't uh, talked about before, many of which I hadn't even seen before hmm. on my site. So that's been fun. And uh, yeah, just. Random, I think the next couple months will be me tying up all the loose ends I want to tie up of random non-Twin Peaks and then using from that point on, um, from like November onwards, just concluding these Twin Peaks projects, which have been percolating for years. I mean, a decade in Journey Through Twin Peaks case, because I started that in 2014 and um paused it waited for the return and then it took several years before i got back to that and now it's been several years since the last few videos so you know there's definitely a lot of work upcoming so stay tuned
Yeah, I mean, you never have a shortage of projects. Oh, God, no. Nice. And, and, uh, <laughs> well, let's do, let's just for old time's sake, let's do the 45 second or less thing. So you're on the clock. And the closing question is, at the very end of Twin Peaks, is Dale Cooper out of the Red Room, still in the Red Room, back in the Red Room, or none of the above? Either still or back in the Red Room. Um, you have 30 seconds to riff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could accept either of those. I don't think he's not in the Red Room. I think he's still in it or back in it, like he's bounced back into it. I just feel, and this is me, I need more. I need my firewalk with me for the return, just like we had a firewalk with me mm. for the original Twin Peaks show. Um, the Wisteria on Recorded Night, I just, it, and I didn't need it before the return, but now I need it. So give it to me, Lynch or Frost or whoever, or both or neither, or well, no, not neither. <laughs> Definitely Lynch. Maybe Frost, maybe he can write a book or maybe he'll be collaborate. Although I feel like it would be like Firewalk with me. It would be more Lynch-led, but we'll see. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we, we will see. Maybe it's already done. Who knows? Yeah, it could have been done years ago. Right. <laughs> He's just teasing us. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. All right. It was fun. Thank yeah, you, Anthony. Me too. I really appreciate it. When, do you, when do you plan on putting it up? Um, We'll see. Probably got to do a little editing, I yeah, guess. Yeah, usually I try to do things sooner than later, but I don't know. No don't, rush. Yeah, I don't have just any, curious. Yeah, uh, I'm not successful as far as strategizing that stuff. <laughs> Sometime in September or October. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for the people who want to see it, they'll see it. You know. Yeah. But, All right, sounds good. I'll certainly keep in touch, man. And uh, all right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do it again. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Bye bye. I should deliver some sort of message now, but I think I did that before, so...